Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And we're back! (laughs) Yay! It's minute 34 of Superman the movie. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is true. Uh... Of course, you know, you're busy being a daddy, and I was busy obsessing over old horror movies for the past two months. Uh, but I, I think it's time to go back to Gotham and Detective Comics. What do you think? I'm ready for this. <laughs> okay, good. We have our last issue illustrated by the team of Alan Davis and Paul Neary, which is sad. But we have the first chapter of Batman Year Two. Are you excited? I am. I for this for this chapter at least, yeah. I've got a lot of I've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do have a lot to talk about. That's true. But before we dive into year two, we have to pay tribute to a comic legend who passed away during our hiatus. After a lifetime of health complications, comics writer and editor Lynn Wein died on September tenth, twenty seventeen. Wein is perhaps best known as the co-creator of both Wolverine for Marvel and Swamp Thing for DC, but he also wrote and edited Batman stories during his fifty-year career. In fact, he was the editor of the Batman titles prior to this era that we're covering now on Nightcast, and he edited the first comic we covered here, Batman number 400. So we thought we would pay tribute to him by briefly discussing a few of the standout Batman stories that we really like that he wrote during the Bronze Age. What do you got, Ryan? Well, I went through the uh, the Tales of the Batman hardcover collection by Lenwin, which I highly recommend to anybody because if you pick up this collection, first of all, you'll be able to read along with Michael Bailey and Andrew Leyland on the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast, which is great. True. Second of all, I like it just the stories in here. They cover the they range the gamut of weird stories to other kinds of weird stories, but like you get Joker stories, Riddler stories, a Mr. Freeze story, Two Face stories. He delves into Crazy Quilt, The Calendar Man, My Favorite Signal Man, um, Gentleman <laughs> Ghost that you talked about on the the your, uh, Where Does He Get Those Wonderful Toys podcast. You know, there's so mm-hmm. much good meat in this one pretty heavy uh, hardcover collection. It's really worth it. But some of my favorites come right at the beginning of the collection, and the first one is the house that haunted Batman. Um, mm. And given my, you know, my my love of a lot of DC's horror comics that I've been covering lately, uh, no surprise that this type of story it, it, like really appealed to me because Lenwein did a lot of horror stories. The, again, Neil Adams' art, uh, Lenwein script, it's it's fantastic, and like just the cover, uh, you know, alone uh, just is, is amazing with the, the the image of Robin's uh, kind of like melting away or turning into like ash in Batman's mm-hmm. hands. Um, a great little ghost story um, with like cameo appearances from the Justice League and everything. It's just a uh, it's a wonderful story, and it it really makes you appreciate Lenwein as this was his first one out. So. Yeah, that's a great one. And and oddly enough, I know that's not a house of mystery story, but of course, Len Wein was the model for Kane. Kane was based on <laughs> Len Wein. So yep. <laughs> yep. ties it in even better. Yeah. Yep. So one of my favorites is uh, Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker from Batman number 321, March 1980. That was illustrated by Walt Simonson and Dick Giordano, so you know the art's fantastic. But the story is, too, uh, the Joker throws his own birthday party. Uh, he kidnaps all of Batman's allies, and he ties them to an explosive cake. Uh, it's, it's, of course, Batman has to show up, and he turns the table on him. But it's, you know, it's a fantastically fun tale. 
it combines the revived psychotic Joker with the merry prankster Joker and merges them together very well. It's 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 pretty much the take you get from Batman the animated series, and of course Ween is you know ahead of the curve on that by like twenty years almost, and uh, it's uh, or fifteen years or so. Uh, it it's a great story, and it's been in like every version of the greatest Joker stories ever told. I bought this one right off the rack in 1980, so uh, it's long been a favorite. It's got a great Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Yep, sorry, praise be his name. (laughs) I said it too quick. (laughs) It's got a great JLGO PBHN cover as well. Uh, it's a uh, it's a fantastic story. So uh, check it out. You got you got another pick for us, Ryan? Yeah, and again, sticking kind of with the horror vein is the Moon of the Wolf one. Which, if you haven't read the comic, you probably recognize that name from Batman the Animated Series, which was one of the more oddball episodes because dealing with uh, I, I guess they gave it a science fiction twist, but it felt very supernatural, um, which kind of seemed like it was stepping away from the normal tone of the series and. For that reason, the first time I saw the cartoon, I was like, I don't know if this is really working for me. Um, other than that really heavy, twangy electric guitar in the show. That yeah. Down, down, down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, but like go, when I actually – when I read what the source material, the actual comic, and again, Len Wein writing, Neil Adams on art, I was like, oh, I'm, I, I love this so much. This is such a cool story. And it really – it actually made me appreciate – the animated series episode even more because I think they they took what was the material here in the comic and improved it for that one. But yeah, just uh, really good stuff. Yeah. yeah, fun story. Batman fighting a werewolf can't beat that. Yeah, that's that's a great one, and I think uh, Lynn Ween actually he either wrote the story or the script for that episode too. So I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because he he did a few. I think he wrote the he he did the script on the second part of the first Rachel Ghoul story as well. So he worked on the animated series here and there. So. Uh, yeah, that's a great one. I I picked that one up a long time ago, um, back in the late '80s, when you could actually get those. That was one of the dollar comics. Um, you could actually get those dollar comics pretty affordably. Now you can't touch them without like taking out a loan or something. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, the the hundred page giants, I meant to say, yeah. not dollar comics. Hundred page giant. They're like sixty cents. But that, that's a fan, that's a fantastic story. I love it. Uh, my uh, my second pick would be uh, this is a big one, but uh, the Untold Legend of the Batman, um, the three issue miniseries, came out in uh, 1980. It was my Batman Bible for the <laughs> formative years of my of my comic reading youth. Um, the artwork uh, was by John Byrne in the first issue with inks by Jim Aparo, and then Aparo took over the series with issue two. And I mean, Ween did a great job of you know going through the history of Batman, all the published stories. And synthesizing it into like a cohesive narrative of Batman's life while also telling this mystery story as Batman tries to figure out who is trying to destroy him, somebody that knows all the secrets. So he's going through his past trying to figure out who could this be. Uh, it's it's just a it's a great story. It's it, it got me deep into the Batman history. I mean, I learned that, you know, Bruce Wayne was Robin. I learned that Thomas Wayne was Batman first and uh, stuff like that just blew my you know young mind. And I, I didn't even have the original comic books. Uh, I saw them advertised. I couldn't find them. I had the little tour paperback, like the little black and white uh, cut up paperback. But it's all there, you know, and uh, I read that thing to death. I mean, just to death. So that was fantastic. So. 
Uh, there's there's tons of more great Lynn Wein Batman stories out there, and I do not own that hardcover you spoke of. Cindy was just saying, you need to tell me a book you want for Christmas because she <laughs> likes to get me a book, at least one book. There's my book. So that's going on the Christmas list. Uh, I'm not allowed to buy anything for myself right now. <laughs> We're in a buying freeze at the Franklin household. So, yeah, I am definitely, definitely going to put that on the list. And, uh, you know, if you guys uh, in the comments section, you know, tell us some other Lynn Wein Batman stories that, that you like, that, that stick out to you. I mean, there's there's no shortage of, of great Lynn Wein Batman stories. And, in fact, I think we're going to get to one more story he edited when we cover the Batman annual. Yeah. So his, he's, we're not through with the, the touch of Lynn Wein in our series. And of course, like you said, uh, Michael and Andy are knee deep in the Lynn Wein Batman run over on Overlook Dark Knight. And, uh, so head over there for more Lynn Wein goodness. And, and, uh, I, I for one was really saddened to hear about his passing, but he left behind a, one heck of a legacy in comics, for sure. Absolutely. And as this is a Batman show, that's kind of where we focus this little tribute on. But I, I, for me, like the biggest tragedy was I didn't really realize it until after he died. But when I started looking at his bibliography, I was like, God, this guy has this guy is responsible for some of my favorite characters, my favorite comics. And like, like he touched everything. But like, yeah, as you said, I mean, he created Wolverine. And, you know, he he wrote Giant Size X-Men number one, which also introduced Storm, Colossus, and Nightcrawler, basically laid the foundation because he plotted the next two issues after that, that Claremont yeah. took over. So Claremont's 16-year run on the Uncanny X-Men, which is some of my favorite stuff ever, that's what I grew up, like, loving, that's built on the foundation that Ween established. Of course, you know, Ween created Swamp Thing with Bernie Wrightson. They both died within just about six months of each other. But, like, also, like, I've, I've just been going back. Like, he had a great runs on so many comics, like Marvel Comics, too. Like, I spent, like I've been reading a bunch of old uh, Thor comics that Len Ween wrote. Um, and, I like, remembering, like, all of the, like, the stuff that he wrote for, that I've been covering on, like, uh, Flowers and Fishnets and Power of Fishnets. I'm going to, on the next episode of Power of Fishnets, I'm going to talk about some Zatanna stories that he wrote. Yeah, the guys were, I mean, we're, we're Batman podcasts, so we've kind of focused on those. But, God, you could do a Len Wein podcast. You could do it just going <laughs> yeah. through his body of work, and it would take you a long time to do it because he, he had such a such a stamp. And he's one of those guys that it's I, – I, I found myself – it was easy to forget when I wasn't reading him. But, like, after it was kind of – you know, man, it, this, if this guy isn't on my favorite list of comic book writers – it's only because I like I'm forgetting, and and I shouldn't because he's done so much good work. So and, and as an editor too, not just as a writer. Like his, like we said, like the the work that he did editing Batman is prolific too. So yeah, yeah, a truly a truly great talent. I'm I'm sorry that I never got to meet him or an autograph from him, but uh, me too. Yeah, and and one of the first comic book fans made good. You know, yeah, that, yeah. That him and him, and of course his lifelong friend Marv Wolfman, they started out writing together. And they used to go over, as we discussed on the Jack Kirby uh, Centennial episode, they used to go over to Jack Kirby's house and just hang out in his basement and watch him draw while Roz made him sandwiches, you know? So, <laughs> I mean, and, and then they were, then they sold scripts to like Teen Titans and, you know, I mean, it, you, you know, that's a great, I mean, there's an idea for somebody's podcast. Somebody that's looking to do a podcast. You're right. Somebody could do a Lynn Ween podcast and you could either do it in chronological order or better yet, you could jump around to different yeah. titles he wrote, and you would have 
it would be like the 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 hodgepodge who's who of all comic book characters. <laughs> yes, because he had significant runs, or at least wrote a good amount of stories. Maybe not in one run, but over the years of like every major comic book character from mm-hmm. DC and Marvel. I mean, you really, and he's probably one of the few that actually has done that. It, 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 it would be a fascinating show. I mean, you could do like a a Hulk story to that one week, and then. Batman and Spider and Thor and by I means you could do everybody. Yeah, that's, Fantastic but, Four, even like the Blue Beetle, Wonder Woman. Yeah, the like Blue Beetle things. run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there you go, folks. There's Ryan just came up with a podcast for <laughs> Money on the Table. Just saying. That's, that's right. <laughs> I would listen to that show in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, with that, we'll take a quick break and when we come back, we'll dive into Detective Comics number five seventy five. Don't go away. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. (sighs) I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. promised we are discussing detective comics number 575 cover dated june 1987 according to mike's amazing world of comics it was on sale march 26 1987 the cover of course is by alan davis and paul neary and in front of an orange background and a yellow circle or moon we get a close-up of batman from utility belt up he's looking directly at the reader His cape is draped over his shoulders, a solemn look on his face. Imagine that. It's Batman. (laughs) He holds an automatic pistol in his hand with a shoulder holster across his chest. 
The trade dress is similar to that of Batman Year One with a large bat silhouette under the logo. The text up top tells us this is Batman Year Two Part One. What do you think of this one, Ryan? Uh, it is a striking image. It's definitely, uh, especially coming after some of the other Alan Davis covers um, and a lot of what came before. You look at this one, you're like, wow, uh, it stands out a lot. Uh, it's very simple. And it sort of it strikes me like this would be this would be a good image for like a poster or like a like a desktop wallpaper on your uh, computer or something like that. If I liked the content of the image, um, I don't like the idea of Batman with a gun. Um, even as it's a, sort of like an ironic twist, it's meant to be shocking. But for that reason, I, like I wouldn't want it as a poster. I wouldn't want to look at this all the time. But it is a very, like, I, I can imagine, like, looking across the sea of, like, you know, different comics that came out that month or that week, and just that one kind of standing out because it's so, wow, that's that's unlike, it's not an action shot, it's Batman just standing there, like a, like a movie cover, like a Dirty Harry type of thing, just holding a gun up, except it's not pointing right at you, but Batman with a gun, it's it's an eye grabber. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm going, uh, and it worked that way, you know, when I bought this in 1987... I was aware that Batman had used guns in the Golden Age. I had did a carry a gun. I, I think mostly through the uh, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne by Alan Brennert and, and Joe Staten. Um, that uh, you know they showed that one image of Batman firing a gun. Uh, and I, I don't think I had any uh, Golden Age stories reprinted at that time where he had a gun, but I knew of it. And so here's Batman with a gun on this cover. And I was like, Whoa, you know I mean? It, it blew my young mind. And, and of course, you know, I, I wasn't one of those kids. It's like, yeah, finally Batman's got a gun. He's going to blow people away. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I, that was not me. Um, I was more like, Oh, I was intrigued. Of course I knew that, you know, this, this couldn't last, right. uh, but Batman had a gun and, and yeah, it's a really, you're right. It's a, it's like an iconic poster like image, but it's, if you're a true Batman fan, it's not any kind of poster you really want on your wall, you know, because it's, <laughs> it's so iconoclastic to what Batman is, you know. But that's the point, again. So I think it really does work as to shock. It's Of course, it's gorgeous because it's Alan Davis and Paul Neary, but it, it does shock the reader. If you know anything about Batman, you know this is a huge deal that Batman's carrying a gun. Of course, this isn't quite the cover that Alan Davis envisioned or drew, uh, but we'll, <laughs> there's some slight changes made to this, or not so slight in Alan Davis's uh, mind. Uh, really? We'll are, get back. are you going to tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's talk about. I think we've already discussed this, but we, it, it it deserves discussion again. Uh, but let's we'll probably wait till the end of our synopsis and get into all that and all just right. cover it all at once. What do you think? That's fine. Okay. Uh, needless to say, this is Alan Davis's last cover for Detective Comics, at least for this period. So, uh, and I don't think he's done any more since. But uh, say goodbye to Alan Davis on covers, right here, kids. So, uh, diving inside, the story is called Batman Year Two, Chapter One: Fear the Reaper. Uh, Mike W. Barr was the writer. Alan Davis and Paul Neary artists. Adrian Roy colorist. Richard Starkings letterer. Denny O'Neill editor. Newly appointed Commissioner of Police Jim Gordon is interviewed live on the TV program Gotham Open Forum. The female host continually interrupts Gordon, asking about his relationship with the vigilante known as the Batman. She compares Batman to another quote-unquote costume lawbreaker called the Reaper who stalked the streets 20 years ago. Gordon assures her that Batman works with the police force and not against it. 
The broadcast is received on a TV in a rundown apartment building, which a crew of young thieves calls home. As Gordon describes his new method of calling the Dark Knight on the TV, the broadcast cuts to police headquarters. The bat signal flashes across the Gotham sky for the first time and outside the window of the thieves' darkened apartment. The image is mimicked inside when one of the thugs' flashlight beams hits the chest symbol of the Batman himself. Batman makes quick work of the crew and admonishes their faith in guns when they attempt to fire at him. He leaves them for the police and swings toward the signal bearing his mantle. Across town at her home, Rachel Caspian greets her father, Judson, returning home from abroad for what he calls, quote-unquote, the most important day of my young daughter's life. Judson laments his wife not being there, but Rachel reminds him they promise not to discuss her mother. She then introduces her father to her friend, Dr. Leslie Tompkins, and the two ladies head out to dinner. On their way, Leslie and Rachel stop at the construction site of the future Wayne Foundation building. Bruce Wayne tells Leslie he had hoped she would live in the high-rise apartment up top, but she can't consider being that far away from the people she is trying to help. She introduces Bruce to Rachel, and the three go to dinner to discuss Rachel's charitable work. Bruce attempts to play the flippant playboy when talking about Rachel's work, chalking it up to too much time on her hands or a guilty conscience. Her concern about evil and its influence in the world touches a nerve with Bruce. Leslie's disapproving look shows she is none too happy that Bruce has taken an interest in the young do-gooder. Bruce walks Rachel home and, having contributed to her charity, asks to see her again. As she walks into her home, she tells him that would be impossible. As she is taking her vows in a few days, she is going to become a nun. Inside, she learns her father has gone out. Judson Caspian silently walks the streets of Gotham, past wanted signs and graffiti, past gangs boosting cars and starting fires. He returns home to his room and, pulling down a mounted candle holder, opens a secret door in the wall. Inside rests a strange costume consisting of a metallic helmet in the shape of a skull, red armored suit, and a black cloak. Beside them hang two long, hand-worn scythes with morning star-like balls at the handle ends. Later, in a rough area of town, a woman is assaulted by a gang who searches through her purse. An icy voice demands, Release her! The punks expect Batman, but instead find the skeletal and armored form of the Reaper. He murders most of the young thugs with a few swipes of his blades and then mows down the others trying to run away with guns concealed in his spiked gauntlets. He tells the frightened victim she has no reason to fear the Reaper and vows to save the city, with or without its consent. At Stately Wayne Manor, Bruce quizzes Leslie about Rachel, much to her ire. She doesn't want her corrupted by Bruce's world. As if in answer, the bat signal flashes. Leslie begs Bruce not to go out, as she'll fear that one night he will leave and never return. Bruce promises he will return this night, and makes his way through the entrance behind the grandfather clock into the Batcave below. Alfred remarks it's the only place on Earth that Bruce truly feels himself. At police headquarters, Batman gives Gordon a little grief about how he portrayed the relationship on TV. The Dark Knight reminds his ally that he is a free operative. Gordon informs him of another such operative, the Reaper. Frightened at the prospect of the original's return, Gordon hopes it's a copycat trying to make use of the Reaper's considerable reputation. As he leaves, Batman offers Gordon a gift to help him break his cigarette addiction, a pipe. Batman notes that the Reaper's attack was on Bank Street, a respectable neighborhood during his time. Thinking that Gordon is wrong and he is dealing with the original vigilante, Batman makes his way to the once posh but now seedy Sutter Lane. There he witnesses the Reaper remove a disguise and attack a prostitute. Batman leaps to her rescue and kicks the Reaper from behind. The Reaper comments that Batman is continuing the fight he began decades ago, but the Cape Crusader points out he doesn't trade in wholesale slaughter. Batman's punch connects with the Reaper's leather armor, 
but the killer does not respond in kind at first. He gives Batman one more chance to walk away. Then he puts his scythe behind his back and begins to pummel the masked manhunter with his spiked fists. He headbutts Batman with his metal skull, then returns to his scythe, slashing away at the Dark Knight. Batman's smoke pellets are mere parlor tricks to the Reaper, who slashes his way out of the fog, cutting Batman across his chest. With his opponent down, the Reaper moves in for the kill, unleashing his guns on the fleeing Batman, who barely makes his way to a manhole. Using the cover as a shield, he falls into the sewer below, his almost lifeless body floating away in the foul stream. Later at Wayne Manor, Alfred finds his master's battered body on the floor. A bruised and battered Bruce Wayne awakens to the faces of both Alfred and Leslie. Despite his serious injuries, he does remind Leslie he kept his promise. He did make it home. He tells the two he used all of his skills and strengths, but they still weren't enough to defeat the Reaper. He walks over to the huge portrait of his parents and opens a hidden compartment in the frame. He pulls out an automatic pistol and holding it up before a devastated Alfred and Leslie ponders that perhaps the only way he can avenge his parents is to fight the kind of man who killed them with the weapon that made me what I am, the gun that took their lives. So what do you think about that? Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Lots to unpack. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Big picture stuff in the trade paperback for year two. It has an introduction by Mike Barr, and he talks about how most of this story came to him years before he actually got the gig writing Detective Comics. Mm. Um, And he had this idea of synthesizing a lot of the disparate elements from Batman's early stories published chronologically, like the the Bob Kane, Bill Finger era, and putting this stuff together in a way that makes sense in in a story that he tentatively called Batman 1980. And DC passed on it. They weren't interested in it. And then eventually, after as as they were gearing up and doing year one, and he got the gig to do Detective Comics, they kind of asked him to do a continuation. What happens after year one? What is year two? And it happened to align with a lot of the things that he wanted to do with this Batman 1980 project, as he describes in the in the intro. And it sounds like maybe 75% was his original ideas and 25% was him trying to incorporate things that uh, Frank Miller and David Mascelli had done in year one. And in some ways it succeeds, and in some ways I, I don't think it does. And I think where the story falls for me, the failings of it, and I do think at least in this first chapter there's a lot more good than bad. But where I'm not happy with it, and we'll see more of this as the story goes on, I think is where, as a direct continuation of Batman Year One, this does not feel like it's in the same universe. This still feels like it's in more of a typical sci-fi superhero fantasy adventure comic. And Year One broke away from all of that. Year One said, no, this is a grounded urban street drama. This is a crime noir story. And if you're doing a book called Batman Year Two, you should probably try to adhere to that same tone and that same formula. And it starts that way. Like if we're like getting into like the the early stuff, it begins the fir- the begins with a a news program doing an interview with Commissioner Gordon that's used as sort of expositional purposes. That felt like year one, even though the art style is completely different. It felt like okay, we could have seen something like that in year one. Then the next three pages, you get Batman taking down these robbers, breaking into an apartment in the middle of the night. It's very dark. It's moody. The dialogue, like, I I could hear, uh, read uh, um, Mike Barr's dialogue in this, close my eyes, and picture Mazzuccelli drawing those pages. 
So mm. like that first encounter with Batman taking down those guys, I was like, that felt like a year one type of thing. I could see that. Even though the art is completely different, like when I'm first reading this, when I'm getting into it, I was like, yeah, I can see this being a continuation of year one. And then we introduce the Reaper, and I think that's where the story really kind of changes. Um, and I'll, I'll get more into that. But what did you think overall? What were your thoughts on this one? Um, I, I pretty much felt the same way. That's what jumped out at me this time in doing our podcast, that what it did feel like you know this was like a totally different universe. I mean, there's lip service paid to year one. Um, and like you said, you, you know, you point out that there are some things that feel – that, that, that could be uh, from a year one story. Of course, Alan Davis's art is much more traditional uh, superhero art in the vein of Neil Adams or a creator like that. Uh, so, and, 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 you know, which is very much the foundation of the Bronze Age Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, this still feels very much like a Bronze Age Batman comic. And, uh, you know, there's things like Gordon looks 20 years older suddenly. Uh, it's only it's only a year later, but now all this red hair has gone. He's, you know, he's still a handsome-looking, strong-looking man, but he's got a little bit of, you know, loose skin around his neck like you do when you get older. And, and uh, you know, he, he looks at least 20 years older, if not 30 years older than he did in, in Batman Year One. Um, you know, of course, Batman's costume you know, it's it's the same costume Alan Davis has been drawing the entire time he's been drawing Detective. Right. Uh, he's got the yellow oval. He's got the blue, predominantly blue instead of black cape, cow, glue, gloves, boots, trunks, you know. Um, he's got the capsule belt. So, you know, it's the thing that gets me about this, and I hate to bring this up right now because um, we should have brought this up at the beginning of the show, but – uh, I was saddened to hear that uh, Denny O'Neill's wife of many, many years, Mary Fran O'Neill, passed away. Yes. And uh, so our thoughts with uh, the O'Neill family and, and Denny O'Neill. Um, and so I hate I hate to criticize Denny O'Neill at this at this point, because obviously Denny O'Neill is a, is is one of the legends of, of comics and in Batman in particular. You know, I mean, his 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 writing work on Batman is beyond reproach. And of course, he guided these books for almost 15 years. But I, I, I do say I, th- I think that the editorial direction of the Batman books right now, there's, you know, th- there's a desire for a cohesiveness, but the work's not being put in to make it that way. It's mm-hmm. and there's a the from the den column in this issue. I'll, I'll read a little bit from it and it'll kind of shine some light on on our disconnect here. Uh and, and Denny wrote in regards to year two, he says, we'll watch Bruce Wayne continue to learn the lessons he needs to survive. The lessons begun in Batman year one. And at the same time, hone his skills and deepen his commitment to ending crime. Taken together, year one and year two form the definitive extended origin of the world's greatest detective. You know, it, it doesn't really work because these two feel so separate. Yeah. You know, they, they feel so like they're in two different universes, you know, I mean, the, you know, I, it just, it just does. Um, and that's, you know, what you could say about really all of Barr and Davis's run. He wasn't working in the same, at least between Miller's year one and what Collins was trying to do <laughs> with, with the Batman titles and the whole like branding of the new adventures. Like they were trying to say, Okay, we're starting over. This is the new. This is a tighter continuity, and we'll talk more about this in the uh, when we get to the listener feedback from this. But DC was saying this is a new, tighter continuity. That this is official. This is it's meant to wrap, and and the timeline is supposed to work this way. This is what they're telling us. 
but the stories, as you said, they don't reflect that. They don't work. This doesn't feel like it's in the same universe. If this had just been a Bronze Age Batman story that came... And, and I think I would like this story, all told from start to beginning, Batman Year 2, I would like it better if it wasn't called Batman Year 2. Mm-hmm. If it was just a story about sometime in Batman's past, if this had been published in 1984, which is when Barr originally pitched it when he wanted it to or something, and it, and it wasn't meant to be the direct sequel, the follow-up, the culmination of what Miller and Mazzuccelli started. It's like, what? no, this is not what they wanted. This is not the same vision. What Are you, are you crazy? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to actually say that, for them to like put such an emphasis into that and to advertise it that way, it's like, Denny, do you, are you reading the work that's coming across your desk? Like, <laughs> and uh, and again, like, Denny is, is a legend, but I just think as we are seeing, he, he he they they were struggling out of the gate, and and maybe it was, and and I think Frank mentions this, and we'll get to it again in the listener feedback. He he suggests that. Maybe Giordano was supposed to be editing all of the Batman books and had to step away, and Denny came in late in the game and didn't really have a handle on what was going on uh, and really had to to kind of catch up to that. Because um, uh, it, it just it, – it's a good story, but it's – they're saying – they're telling us it's one thing. We're buying into something and getting something completely different. Right. Yeah. That's basically – yeah, that's, that's exactly what the problem is. And – and you know, there's there's things like the the woman, the TV uh, host says, you know, the the corruption that Gotham just came out of, you know, basically <laughs> is what she says. It's like really did I can't imagine the the corruption of Batman Year One ending in a year's time. You yeah. know, I just they, now like you said, if if you if you if they just made this, you know, if they made this into current continuity, of course you'd have to take that the Wayne Foundation building's being built out of it, but that's one you know one page you'd have to change. Mm-hmm. You know, just keep. You know, I don't know what you do with Jason during this period, but, you know, he could be recuperating from his uh, <laughs> wounds from the Mad Hatter, right? Yeah. And so Batman goes out on his own, gets his rear kicked by the Reaper who has resurfaced, and now Batman's going to go use a gun. And that would even be, you know, Jason would be be, be be like, well, you can't use a gun. You're Batman. You don't – you hate guns, you know. Or I mean, this would actually be a stronger story if it was just in the, the bar Davis modern – setting you know of of today of the present uh, of 1987 uh <laughs> but but uh yeah it's it just it and like you said i i was not i don't have the trade paperback of year two i still have all my original floppies so i was unaware of the his pitch of batman 1980 or if i read about it i'd forgot about it so that really helps explain this disconnect because it sounds like to me they just he dusted off his treatment and there wasn't a lot of effort made. He probably wasn't told to change it to match year one very well, you know, to make sure it really tightly connects. And that's he says he says O'Neill gave him the scripts for year one. And you can see some things that he changed, some things he adapts, but it also kind of feels like he just compromised some things and made it maybe lesser for that. Because there are other things, like basic, simple things, like if you're saying, if this is year two and it's going to feel like a continuation, a sequel to year one, it's like, how much time passes in this first issue? Mm -hmm. Do we have any idea? No, it just seems like a few days to me. Okay, here, you know, like, I mean, like, just... like the date stamps, the passage of time is directly marked in year one. It's a specific. Yeah. You know how many months, how many days pass by 
in a random issue of year one. This one, this might have been three days. This There might have been a month or longer between it. Like, how long is Judd Caspian, like, coming back and kind of, like, walking the streets before he decides to go on a murder spree again? Like... I don't know, and that's like a big. Part. That's why this like feels just like a random story that could have gone anywhere. And yeah, and getting to the Reaper, boy, um, <laughs> it is. Uh, I, I mentioned this about the cover. It is a striking character design. Uh, I mean, you look at that and you're like, wow, that is a terrifying looking villain. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like it's a, like medieval, like the 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 armor and everything, like the red look. It reminds me of like the the. Blood red suit and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes. Like the the mask and like the blades and everything kind of reminds me of General Kale from Willow. Like they're mm. like all these things. I was like, this guy would be great on a medieval battlefield where the where the blades would kind of be practical, but as a vigilante just walking the streets, I'm like, I don't think this works. Especially again, coming after year one, which is this grounded, realistic st- type of story. It's like this. This villain does not feel like a Batman villain from that world. This feels like a villain who would work against Wonder Woman or Green Lantern, maybe even Green Arrow. Um, mm. The fact that the sides, they're not just like big blades that he has like both of them in his hands, it's like so he can't pick things up, but they also have guns built into them. It's like, pick, <laughs> no, stay in your lane, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, it occurs to me if they had just went with a guy that had, you know, maybe he was... Uh, of course, then they might have been compared too much to the Punisher. But yeah. if he just had a hood like that had a skull like, you know, painted on the front of it and then just used machine guns or something and, you know, and just wore like a, a, a long duster, right, you know, right. it, that would have worked within the framework of a Batman year one type. Yes. Story, yeah. You it know? Actually, yeah, it would have. That would have been because that you could see a kind of copycat or something coming out inspired by Batman, but taking it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking that, like, that, uh, I also, I have a problem, again, with the idea, like, if you're going to have guns built into those weapons, why do you even have the blades? Like, if you're, right, will, yeah. if you're willing, if there's not something symbolic about cutting them up, if you're just willing to shoot them from a distance, why are you getting dressed up? <laughs> that's that's right. why when people are like, if, ba- you know, Batman would kill his bad guys, it's like, no, well, then he wouldn't dress up as Batman. Right. But, he wouldn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, again, I, keeping with the same thing and this is where i think Barr was compromising but not going all the way i don't like this idea that there was this older psycho vigilante killing people in gotham 20 years before batman because that doesn't feel like it's in the world that miller and mazzuccelli created um and and that's why i didn't i don't really like this in the story now Eventually, once DC kind of got its timeline in order and they established that, you know, the Justice Society was around before the current heroes, that Green Lantern, the Alan Scott version, lived, he was the protector of Gotham. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, they would bring the Reaper back and kind of integrate that that time period into the secret origin of Black Canary, written by your favorite Alan Brenner. Yes. Um, Brenner's story went a long way of kind of making me think, Okay, this is plausible within this universe that you could have a Reaper character like this who was here and then kind of went away for 20 years. But until we get there, just as is, if I'm reading, I was like, this is not the same Gotham that we were reading about in year one. So don't tell me this is the sequel to year one. <laughs> so. Do you do you think that part of it, too, might be that, you know, really, I mean, we put 
you know, Frank Miller, you know, despite what you might think of his work since The Dark Knight and Batman Year One right, right, right. when it comes to superhero stuff. But obviously we put Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One up on the – most people do up on the pedestal of greatest Batman stories ever and some of the greatest comics ever. Mm-hmm. But to Mike W. Barr, he's been writing Batman regularly since like 1980, probably two when he was finishing the Outsider, up yeah. Raven, Raven the Bold oh, and then yeah. Batman and the Outsiders. And, you know, he wrote several – he wrote the the Batman special, The Player on the Other Side, which of course was very well received and an instant classic. And, uh, you know, and, and then he's been writing Detective for some time. Do you think in some ways it's kind of like, well, I don't need to follow what Frank Miller's doing. I know how to write Batman. I've been writing Batman for years. I'm, Frank Miller's just some punk that come from Marvel, and now he's trying to tell me how to write Batman. You know, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm, I bet that probably is the case. I'm sure that is the case. I'm sure they hated being compared to it at the same time. And, and maybe DC didn't know that year one was going to be the thing. Although from the letters from the den, I mean, Denny says it's meant to be the definitive origin. I mean, they did change the trade dress for you. I think they knew that it was going to be something special, but maybe they didn't know that it would have that type of historic. Another thing for that Mike Barr said in the intro to the trade paperback is the original plan was to publish year one and year two concurrently in Ooh. Batman and Detective, that they were going to come out in the same months. And then somebody, like a lower level editor, was just like, why not do year one and then year two chronologically so we don't confuse people? And everybody was like, oh, yeah, that actually makes more sense. But, <laughs> like, if that had been the case, this story would have come out in place of the, I guess, in place of, like, the anniversary issues and the Mad Hatter stories and all of those things. Like, and, and if Alan Davis still ended up leaving after the first issue, we might not have gotten those stories at all. Yeah, um, maybe now's a good time. I had it in my notes later, but maybe now's a good time to uh, talk about the the gun issue before mm-hmm. we actually jump into the story. Uh, so we brought this up before, um, but uh, the original intent was uh, Mark, Mike Barr and Alan Davis discussed the story, and they decided that the gun uh, that Batman uses should be a uh, Mauser, uh, which is a um, the same gun that... Walt Simonson and Archie Goodwin's Manhunter used, the mm-hmm. Paul Kirk Manhunter from the 70s in Detective Comics, oddly enough. So they had, you know, Alan Davis drew the scenes from the previous issue where they covered their version of Batman's origin, where uh, Joe Chill or whoever it is, we'll get to that in subsequent issues, uh, kills the Waynes. He used a Mauser. And uh, then Bruce retrieved the Mauser. And then, of course, we see him pull out the Mauser here. The Mauser was on the cover of Detective Comics number 575 that we're talking about as Davis drew it. This goes against tradition, which I always showed it as like an automatic 45. I don't, I'm not a gun guy, but it, it's, it's my knowledge is like a 45 caliber automatic, you know, gun pistol. So, you know, that is how it was drawn. Uh, at some point, someone at DC said, oh, wait, you know. Mazzucchelli is drawing it as a 45 over here. And apparently, you know, Barr and Davis were working way ahead on, on Batman, on, on the Batman stories period. And, per, and maybe Batman year two, maybe it was drawn before some of the other stories because of the, the original intent to, yeah, well, that doesn't make sense or he would have drawn the other issues. So no, never mind, scratch that. But <laughs> trying to figure all this out is like, uh, but anyway, it was, they were working way ahead of the schedule. And because they they both like to to work way ahead of schedule, mm-hmm. and uh, 
rather than ask Mazzuchelli to change how he had drawn the you know Wayne murder sequence and the gun in the one time we see it in Batman Year One, they had they asked Davis to redraw it, and that was just kind of the the final straw for Davis, who had tired of the lack of communication he felt he was getting from uh, Denny O'Neill's office, and he left the book. And it fell to Dick Giordano or, you know, somebody in his uh, Frank McLaughlin or somebody, maybe (laughs) Uh, it might have been Dick himself um, to redraw every appearance of the the gun in both the last issue and in this issue into the traditional 45 that we've been seeing ever since, you know, Bob Kane and Bill Finger first showed the Wayne murder in Detective, Detective Comics number 33 all those years ago. So. Uh, but yes, briefly, it was going to be and drawn as a Mauser. It was changed back to a 45, and that's why Alan Davis is no longer the artist as of the, the end of this issue. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the weird thing is, with all of the other inconsistencies in the art from year one to this one, like the different styles, the way the Batman costume looks like, every, the way that, like, if they had just gone with a completely different gun, I don't think I would have noticed. I don't think I would have cared. Like right. that, that wouldn't have been a hang-up for me compared to all of the other things that are different. So it's just such a such a weird thing to focus on. But I don't yeah, know I think it's... it was just kind of. I guess it was to him. It was, and this is I, I got that from, and I'm paraphrasing it. The, the, if you go back to the first one, we first started the Davis Bar run. Uh, I get into more detail on that, and I, I quote the. Uh, the modern masters book the, by Eric Nolan Wethington uh, that uh, that I pulled that that's uh, you know Davis's version of the story from but it's essentially yeah it was just the final straw that that broke the camel's back but I, I still think a Mauser to me of course this should have been communicated to them beforehand but a Mauser is just too odd of a of a gun to to make into. It needs to be uh, – I think it's more powerful if it's a gun that everybody is familiar with, that Batman has the type of gun that you see used on cops. Of course, he doesn't have a thirty-eight special, but you see used in lots of movies and cop shows that right. that you see out at retail stores like Walmart or something. There's that type of gun. You know, it, it, a Mauser's – it almost – you know, you could almost say, well, that shoots a grapple line or something. You know, I mean yeah. it, it, it. I think it's more powerful if it's a gun that's – instantly identifiable to anybody and that that's a gun that's a handgun you know i agree um, i think like the mauser is unusual enough kind of beyond the, like that it it would be perceivable that it's like part of his costume that it's mm-hmm. part of the batman identity and it's like no but if he's just a normal kind of so-called you know common street gun then yeah yeah i no, i completely agree with you yeah, and I may have been using the term pistol and handgun interchangeably, and they're not. Again, not a gun guy, and so if I did, sorry. So, but it's a handgun. It's a forty-five. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, so with that all out of the way, you want to actually like talk about the story now? <laughs> <laughs> Whew, uh, yeah. Um, so uh, again, I really liked the beginning. I liked the first couple pages because it felt I was like, okay, I'm buying into this as a as a transition from year one to year two. But again, the interview with Gordon at the beginning, how casually they're like, yeah, Batman is a friend of the cops, or he, he's a he's an independent, he's not a deputized member, but he works with us and we're on good terms, and he he's aces. We're cool with Batman. It's like, really? 
Because it really <laughs> seemed like you were the only one, and that's kind of how it's going to be played from now on, that you're his only ally on the Force, really. Again, that felt like a Bronze Age story intruding mm-hmm. on, uh, like, kind of rearing its, you know, perking its head up in this in this story that's supposed to be of a new age. Um I liked, I, I actually, I found myself, because I completely forgot about, like, the semi-sort of romantic subplot, which sort of uh, between Bruce and Rachel, um, but I really liked their dinner scene when he's kind of just playing the, the you know, the, the playboy, the foppies, like, oh, you're doing charitable work, how cute, you know, is it a guilty conscience, something like that, and she starts to talk about your, her fascination with evil and how it corrupts and things like this, and Davis sells you that Bruce changes his opinion of her um mm-hmm. it, it, it's not subtle it's a pretty obvious panel where his face just suddenly turns and it's like oh there's actually something about this girl she's actually special and i i i shouldn't write her off as you know a, a dilettante or something like that um i liked that exchange and the fact that he's actually drawn to her because she she actually she says the words you know in order to combat evil you kind of have to understand it you have to look at it and really examine it. and that piques something in him he's like yep that's kind of what I've been doing like and it makes sense that he would be drawn to her and when he takes her home that night he's like can I see you again and she's like oh I'm becoming a nun it's like wah wah <laughs> <laughs> it's almost Peter Parker look in that regard <laughs> exactly exactly um, I fall in love and it's a it's a girl that's going to become a nun. <laughs> She's like, I'm taking my vows tomorrow. Like, well, what about tonight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the character of Rachel, uh, you know, perhaps inspires two love interests in Batman films, uh, Andrea Beaumont mm-hmm. from Mask of the Phantasm, which we'll get back to the Phantasm later, folks. I, yeah, we uh, definitely, after, once we're done with this whole story, we definitely need to talk about its influence on Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah. And uh, Rachel Dawes yeah. in the Nelson trilogy of films. Rachel! You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> I still thought, like, I remember after seeing Batman Begins, thinking that since she basically she basically was Harvey Dent in that movie, uh, she was that type of character, I was like, I really thought, I was like, you know, they could have just made her Two-Face in the sequel. This was Ooh. before I saw The Dark Knight, which is one of my favorite movies. And I, I really like what they did with Aaron Eckhart and that version of Two-Face. But I remember thinking, I was like, if Rachel, if Batman's former girlfriend became the ADA and she becomes Two-Face somehow, that would be a really interesting take on that character. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that, <laughs> uh, maybe they didn't figure Katie Holmes had the had the uh, acting chops to pull off. <laughs> well, they replaced her anyway. But... They replaced her anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal probably could have pulled it off. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah. <laughs> have um... you heard that? Have you watched? Uh, while we're talking about Two Face, have you seen the the Batman versus Two Face animated movie with Adam West and William Shatner? I have not seen it yet. Um, I, I need to prep myself. I, I'm looking forward to it because. The Return of the Cape Crusaders was amazing. I love that one. I had so much fun watching that one. I haven't seen Batman versus Two Face yet. It is William Shatner is a great Two Face. <laughs> I mean, it, it he is. I mean, it's like wow. He and and he's actually acting. You know, I think it's the yeah. first time William Shatner's <laughs> not played. You know, goofy old William Shatner in like twenty years. It's it's great. It's yeah. it, it it's it's a kind of it's got it's got the Batman sixty six feel, but it's more Norse like the the first season of the show, like the mm-hmm. first few episodes were, it's, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. If you haven't seen it, 
uh, rush out and buy it. And if you haven't seen either one, I saw in February they're going to put like a two pack out with both of them together. That's cool. Uh, so yeah, so everybody go out and watch Batman vs. Toothpaste. And of course, it's Adam West's last Batman. Uh, last turn is Batman, which is sad, but it's uh, he went out in style. It's great. that's good. That is good to hear. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know one thing about the you know I, one thing about the, the actual story. I really like the splash page with the with the Reaper. Yeah, you know, it's like Batman's leaping away from this column that's basically formed by the Reaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's I, I actually I don't know I don't know how this would have worked as a cover, but uh, in a lot of ways I like this is a this is your poster image right here. You know, yeah, uh, got the the side like coming down a curve and the bat signal. Alfred Gordon. Uh, uh, you've got uh, Rachel as a nun, which we don't see in this issue, of course. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, Leslie, which another, that's another thing. Leslie. Okay. Barr, Mike W. Barr really likes the character of Leslie Tompkins. And I like what they did that they made Leslie a doctor and all that, but it's kind of like, especially where was Leslie in Batman year one? She's so important here. She's so important that Bruce Wayne's like building her a penthouse on top of the Wayne foundation building. It's almost like that season of Buffy where she suddenly had the little sister. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like somebody has went back and messed with time and inserted Leslie Tompkins into, into Bruce's backstory as this like important like mother figure who's constantly there. She's just always there nagging him. You know, it's mm-hmm. like and she does kind of come across in this issue as a nag. I'm sorry, but you know we we're we're reading this for Batman. And and we haven't gone into the the depths of the the psychologically crippled Batman that comics will in the next twenty thirty years. So you know Batman's still very you know I mean yes he, they're they're getting more into the psychological aspects of the character but he's still very much the hero. So when Leslie's like oh no Bruce don't go don't go it's like you know he's going to go shoot up heroin or something instead of becoming Batman you know it's like no he's he's Batman this is his book. Stop nagging him, lady. You know that's that's kind of the way I. That's the I hate to say that, but it's kind of the way I'm looking at the character in this, in this book. And because this is Batman Year Year Two, we're supposed to connect it to Year One. She's not in Batman Year One. It just feels like this, this old Aunt Biddy that used to be around when Bruce was younger has like shown back up and is living at Wayne Manor. I know she's not, but, and she's almost like the Aunt Harriet character that's in the know or something. You know, it's. It's, I don't know. You can understand where she's coming from, but she hasn't earned the right to criticize Batman, at least from the sort of normal fanboy perspective mentality, because we haven't seen their relationship grow. Like, uh, and again, like you, she was introduced in the, the, or she appeared in the issue previous when they had their whole fight, but that one seemed to be resolved in the, the hospital. And now we're, we're, back with her again but there isn't a a flow if this is supposed to continue from the miller story you're giving us a character that you like and that you have this history of in your mind but it hasn't been worked out on the page and i mean i guess for the fans who were listening to this podcast and saying they wanted bruce wayne year one um i we we might have had some of those answers uh we could have gotten her developed in that one but Right. Yeah. So her part in the story didn't didn't really do anything for me. It just feels like not a Mary Sue, but it's just Barr inserting a character that he likes into the story that doesn't really belong here. That hasn't earned earned the place in the story yet. Um, 
especially as a witness as somebody who's who's in the know who has the kind of access to Batman's operation and his thoughts uh, and this history. If we could have gotten a little bit more of their their history before this, that might have helped. But you know, he's her her, her introduction by Denny O'Neill was twenty years before this, so. Yeah, and then she was just a she was simply an old lady that helped Bruce the night that his yeah. his parents were murdered. I mean, he visited her every year uh, that he'd come back to Crime Alley, and so she wasn't this force in his life that was constantly trying to steer him away from being Batman. She didn't even know that Bruce Wayne was Batman, although I never could quite understand why she couldn't put two and two together and realize that the old lady version of Leslie didn't put two and two together and realize that Bruce Wayne was Batman. Maybe she did and she just never said. I don't know. But Now, if we looked at this this story and her appearance here in, in context with the, the previous issue of Detective, my beginning, my probable end, when Jason is shot and he takes – uh, he takes Jason to her clinic. There we get kind of the story that she was kind of a surrogate mother figure, that she was involved a little bit more. Does that make that story canon? Is that part of the same continuity, the whole thing with Jason there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess it, you know, it is. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, it works with the last issue, but it just doesn't work with year one. It, it, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's it, again, it's like we're in this different universe mm-hmm. I mean, you can honestly say at this point, you can say that some of like the untold legend of the Batman actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> and and then this is a more of a detailed story of why Batman briefly used a gun, you know, and then and you get you've got to change the role of Leslie. But if you establish that, you know, she was a doctor, that she was more involved in Bruce's life uh, and all that stuff, then, yeah, I mean, it, 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 again, it's just that disconnect from year one. And I don't mean to keep harping on that. And we both are. But. You know, doing this show and it's not and it's not even just the perspective of us looking at it as, you know, you know, well, it was the post crisis relaunch. And, you know, some people when we first started this show, they're like, well, there really wasn't a post crisis relaunch with Batman. So you can't really hold them hard and fast to that. Well, that's true. But but here, as I said from the den, no, this is supposed to be a cohesive backstory uh, for Batman. You know, so even if there'd been a line that Leslie said, you know, look, Bruce, when, you know, when you came, you know, when when I came back into your life, you know, a few months ago or something, you know, I'm glad we've reconnected, you know, or something like that. But, you know, I'm not going to live in your penthouse. I got to be down here with the people. You know, nobody. I did like the line that she said, well, nobody that comes to my clinic would ever come to this neighborhood. You know, I thought that was an interesting line. I mean, it's well, well written. Don't get me wrong. It's. It's very well written, of course. Uh, it's, but it, it just, it just feels, it just feels odd, you know. It, it just, like you said, she, we haven't. This, this Leslie hasn't earned the the place of the doubting Thomas in this, mm-hmm. you know, in this story. We, you could use Alfred for that, and he's earned it. Right. And uh, Alfred actually gets less to do because Leslie's there. You know, basically, you know, he doesn't get to have those discussions with Bruce because Leslie's there to to do it. So, you know, another thing with continuity is, uh, you know, Gordon's trying to quit smoking. Uh, We saw him smoking year one. That is true. We did see him smoking cigarettes. Uh, He's trying to use mints. Batman brings him a pipe. Is that better than cigarettes? (laughs) (laughs) Nineteen eighty seven logic. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I I mean, I. I think the tobacco gets straight to you faster, so no, but there's also all the other carcinogens and chemicals they put into cigarettes. Uh, the, may, I, I don't think it is healthier. 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe they don't have all the tar and all yeah. that stuff in it, but yeah, it's it's. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that was that was kind of a kind of a nice little bit. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of surprised that we didn't have when the Reaper tries to attack that prostitute that it wasn't Rhonda uh, from the from the Bar Davis one run. Oh, yeah, you know, that, yeah. Because they established that Batman knows her. This would have been a good chance for him to meet Rhonda. You know, because he introduces Jason to her (laughs) famously and lets her babysit Jason while he, you know, uh, goes and and, uh, scares uh, the profile with prison rape in that (laughs) scene that everybody remembers. So, (laughs) oh, boy. (laughs) So what did you think of the fight between Batman and the Reaper? I thought it was really it was really well done. It was very brutal, but it's interestingly bloodless because my God, in the next few issues, <laughs> holy cow, this book gets bloody. I mean, like gory, yeah. just gory, like eighties horror movie gore uh, is what this this book becomes in a few issues. I mean, there's I don't think there's a drop of of blood seen, but God, it looks painful. I mean. The slashes across, especially like the the X cross mm-hmm. uh, slash across Batman's chest when he gets hit in the back, and, and there's that one shot of him looking up at the Reaper where Davis gives him pupils, little beady pupils, and he Batman looks like a cornered animal. Yeah, I mean he looks he's sinewy, and of course he's always uh, you know lithe and, and sinewy, sinewy looking under Davis's pencil anyway. But I mean he looks like an animal that's been in a horrendous battle and he's getting ready to, he's trying to decide whether to pounce or flee. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's brutal, but it's, mm-hmm. it's choreographed very well. I mean, again, this is, this is Davis's cinematic prowess. You could see this happening in a movie, you know, the coloring on the trade for that X slash in the bottom of that panel, the bottom uh, right panel on that page it yeah. is colored where the exit looks very red. It's not oh, like it's, it's not gushing blood, but it definitely looks like it, that's what it's supposed to be. He's breaking the skin, and it's not just ripped clothing. There's blood there because um, okay. that, that X is distinctly red in the coloring of the trade. Well, they must have. I don't know if they they got cold feet in this issue because in the original floppy, I, I swear there's like and even when he slashes those those guys earlier that were attacking that woman, all you see is like fabric being torn. There's no blood. It's. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of a pink, like swish across. So I guess that could be construed as blood. But as far as there being red, uh, red coloring to indicate blood, there's not even any on Batman when he comes into the uh, when Alfred finds him in the manor. There's like sewer water. It's like brown and green, you know, where he's been, you know, yep. floating through the sewer. But some of that could have been originally drawn to be blood, and it's it is in the trade. That that is page it? that panel he's cut like the X's blood. He's got a little bit of blood on his shoulder too, and on his leg. Mm. Um, it, there, it's a little bit more. It definitely looks like it's recolored. It wasn't even part of the pencil. It's just color splo- splotches. But yeah. oh wow, okay, so they definitely changed the. It's not. It's not like it's again not compared to what we'll see in the later <laughs> issues, but it's, yeah, there's definitely supposed to be some blood. Like, yeah, the, the pool of liquid that's underneath him, that's not blood. Like that okay. still looks like it's like water rain, but just on his, on his body, on the gray of his shirt, there's a few, there's parts of red. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I do like, I know it doesn't fit with the I, I actual year two, if you're following Batman year one, but I do like 
the Reaper design. And I do like that it's his his whole armor is actually hidden. You you don't see his armor until him and Batman get into the fight and he's standing there revealed with his studded armor that yes, it, it definitely looks like the uh Gary Oldman Bram Stoker uh Batman uh Batman <laughs> Dracula armor from you know, a few years later. I mean, it's about what, like five years from now, or that was ninety. That. that was ninety-two or ninety-three. So ninety-two. Okay, so it was five years ago. Okay, yeah. five years later. Sorry, five years later. So, um, but uh, yeah, it, it is a sharp uh, look. <laughs> sharp. <laughs> it's covering spikes. <laughs> uh, but it's a really cool looking design. Again, you know, it's not maybe not for the urban, the very urban Batman universe that we're supposed to be now playing in, but. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's great. And I like, uh, I like the fact that, uh, you don't see the bottom jaw of the skull that makes it, I don't know, just makes it creepier. It's, it's really, it's a really sharp design. And there's an action figure of that coming out from Mattel in their DC multiverse line. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've got a Batman that's got, uh, he's the uh, the DC Universe Classics Batman, but he's got a slash across his chest. I think he came with a Catwoman or mm. or something. That'd be perfect to pair with this Reaper. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> oh, it's it's yeah. So you know, we get of course we get uh, you know Batman makes it back to the manor barely. Uh, he tells Leslie, I, I made it, and uh, then he under the giant. Here's the giant portrait again, kids. We told you. That the giant portrait of the Waynes <laughs> would be important. It's got it. It's not. Oh, I forgot that the gun is in the frame. I mean, that's how big this picture is. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like in the mantle under the frame. No, it's in the frame. <laughs> I looked at the art. I'm like, oh wait, no, it's it's in the frame. Uh, so he pulls the gun out uh, there, which you know, the battered and Bruce. Do, do you think he? Do you think he jumped to this conclusion too quickly? Yes. He, Okay. Okay, I do too. I do too. But, and and that was sort of like my one complaint is like his his encounter with the Reaper. It's so fast and everything, and he he wakes up bloody, and he's like, "All of my training, it didn't matter. Like I've got to the people who killed my parents. I've got to fight them with the same weapon." It's like, where's the, uh, this logic is not tracking for me? That like he's he's deciding that he's gonna is he going out with a gun to shoot the Reaper because he thinks that I, I yeah I didn't. It felt like the he just wanted to end it with the cliffhanger of Bruce Wayne holding the gun that killed his parents, and as I don't think he's there yet. Right. Yeah. I, I think I think maybe if we had they'd had multiple encounters, and maybe even have him going over and looking at the gun and thinking about it, putting it back. You know, like he barely got away one time, but he didn't get destroyed like he does here, and he puts it back. And then maybe even in the next issue, the Reaper like totally just owns him, you know, like he does here. And then he figures, okay, and maybe even have him try to set up a trap for him, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really like uh, really use his, you know, really try to outthink him. And even all of his outthinking can't go up against the brutality that this guy is willing to just unleash. Because for – yeah, Yeah, no, I I agree with all that, but because the gun – for Bruce Wayne to use the gun that took his parents away, that forged him, that made him Batman, that whole thing, like all of his identity is is because of that gun. For him to use that against somebody, that has got to be a 
highly emotional and deeply personal circumstance. And I don't get that from his fight with the Reaper. There's nothing mm. personal there. There's nothing emotional there other than he was like nearly killed by it. And like, it's, I, I mean, I kind of get like, there's, there is a nice sort of um, symmetry with him, you know, like Alfred coming home and finding him bleeding to death. That's sort of like the end of Batman year one. And, mm-hmm. and we're sort of like in that, like a sort of circular aspect, but like, I you know like for like, the only the only thing I can think of like with him picking up that gun and like wanting to use that is if is if he like is if he found out like the Reaper was the guy who killed his parents or something like that if mm. there was some connection there or something like that like for like I just no I I don't buy it I didn't like that part of the the book so well and you know in a lot of ways Bruce keeping the gun all those years. You know, I know Gotham, you know, Gotham, if you go by year one, that the Gotham Police Department uh, has been corrupt for many years. But you kind of, you kind of, you know, in different versions, you kind of speak to a lot of that corruption got, if it didn't begin there, it got worse when, you know, two of Gotham's most prominent citizens were murdered in the streets. You know, that was just another kind of like the final straw that broke the camel's back. The city just went to hell, you know. Uh, which you you know you can put maybe that's too much of an emphasis on the Waynes, but but if Bruce Wayne you know Bruce Wayne instantly young Bruce instantly starts dedicating his life to studying criminology and uh, you know trying to it showed him even in the detective issue before this it showed him reading books when Leslie and Alfred were wanting him to go out and play he was reading you know Sherlock Holmes and you know criminology books and things and wouldn't Bruce, if he was that smart, want to take that gun to the police and say, here, find fingerprints on this gun. Find my parents' killer. You know, run serial numbers. Do something. If he's, I mean, he's a smart kid. I know he's only eight years old, but we're led to believe that Bruce Wayne's a very intelligent kid to begin with. Why would he decide, okay, I'm going to keep this gun just in case I decide to use it 20 years from now. You know, Mm -hmm. it, that part kind of falls apart for me too, if you think about it too hard. Because if he'd taken that gun into the police, I'm sure he could have found you know, I'm sure they would want to find because as we establish in most versions, if you don't count the Lou Moxon thing, Joe Chill's just your average street pug uh, street thug. He's not connected to anybody. He's not like, you know, in this case, he wasn't hired to kill the Waynes or anything. He it was a random robbery gone wrong. Mm -hmm. They would have liked to have said, hey, we caught the Wayne's killer, you know, no matter who it was. It would have been great PR to say, look, we're doing a good job over here. We caught the Wayne's killer. So a lot of this, if you think about it too hard, and of course we have to because we're doing a podcast, it kind of doesn't hang together. It's it's an enjoyable read. It's written well. But some of the basic foundations of it are a little on the shaky side, I think. I agree, and I think the only narrative reason that Bruce would keep that pistol, would keep the gun that killed his parents to himself, not bring it to the police, not turn it over, not use it to try and find his killer, the only reason he would keep it for himself is if he did not want closure, is if some part of him did not want to know the truth or did not want to find his parents' killer because... And I've talked about this before in the past when I kind of was in the headspace where 
if Batman, like, and kind of for context, if you don't know the story, because I've mentioned it a, a number of times on the Secret Origins podcast, thinking that I didn't like the whole Joe Chill story. I didn't like that Batman found out who killed his parents because I thought that type of closure would make it harder for him to still go out. Like, he always needed the question that it wasn't a single guy who killed his parents. It was a systemic thing. It was crime, the sort of bigger picture. The city of Gotham was responsible for their deaths, and that's why Bruce could never really win his war on crime. There was never an adversary that he could actually beat that would make it all okay that his parents died, that would really avenge them or justify their deaths. I think the only reason for Batman to keep the gun is if he, in deep down, feels the same way that I was feeling then, and thinking that I I can't put a face and a name to my parents' killer. It has to be something nebulous, something invisible, something impossible, or or Batman doesn't have a purpose anymore. Um, gotcha. So, but yeah, and, and again, I, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Well, I, and I don't know if that works anyway. Like now, we're just. Now, now we're rewriting the story, and clearly that's not what Barr wanted. Uh, and I mentioned at the beginning of this, I did like this issue. I have a number of problems with it, but overall I think part of it is Alan Davis's art for One Last Bash um, and and the story and what Barr's trying to tell because there's a lot of fun in this, and I just think it's it's one of those things where – Really, like the the whole of Barr and Davis's run, you kind of have to read read this as a, a microverse. It's like a pocket Earth Batman detective comic story. Um, mm. Even though Letters from the Den said this is the definitive sequel and part of the origin, you can't read it that way. If you right. want to, if you want to enjoy this, you can't scrutinize it the way we have been for an hour. If you want right. to, if you want to enjoy this, you have to take it as its own continuity, its own world. Speaking of which, before we uh, – this is actually probably going to work in with some of the feedback that, mm-hmm. that, that we're going to talk about. In the From the Den column, Denny continues, Meanwhile, over in our companion magazine, we're doing a sort of unofficial year three. In issues 408 and 409 of Batman, you'll read the real Jason Todd story, who the kid is and how he came to be Robin. Some of you may remember reading another version of Jason's biography – but I don't have to tell you that it's apocryphal. I swear, I don't understand how these lies get started. When year two is done, three months from now, you should know all you'll ever need to know about the Batman, his life and times. Will we then lean back, relax, and rest on our laurels? No way. We're already preparing to introduce a totally new element into the Batman mythos, and that is that in turn will lead to even newer elements, and stay tuned. So, again, year three. <laughs> Where's Dick Grayson? <laughs> Where's Robin? Where's you know, it's like, so? It's like they really were thinking about just like erasing Dick Grayson's so, Robin. So it's yeah, freaking... so his his take Batman Year Three introduces the second Robin. What about that yeah. first Robin, Denny? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> to me, that I mean, I'm not again. I hate to pick on Denny O'Neill, especially right now because yeah. I you know, I really do feel awful for it in a lot of ways, but. And I love the guy's work. It's just, but it's it's clear to me that it's like, okay, you're you're saying this is definitive, but you, you can't ignore the fact that Dick Grayson was Robin. He had to be Robin for some amount of time. This doesn't work. This is work. This Dan DeDio's five year timeline is genius. <laughs> you get a five year timeline, you know, to compare to to this. It's like the three year. We got the three year timeline. with Dick Grayson was Robin for two days. Uh, <laughs> 
It's like, I mean, oh, holy cow. <laughs> it reminds me of one of my favorite gags from an old South Park episode. I haven't watched South Park in like uh, 10 years, but one of my old, one of the old gags that I liked was the underpants gnomes. And it was yeah. step one, steal underpants. Step three, huge profits. It's like, <laughs> what about, what's, what's step two? Well, you see, in step one, we steal all the underpants. And by the time we get to the plan, step three is huge profits. You didn't. You didn't tell us what step two is. <laughs> well, apparently those those underpants were chainmail green undies. So, <laughs> oh, have we have we thoroughly picked this one apart? You think? Uh, I think we've eviscerated it. Okay, we've we've ta- we've taken our size to it like a reaper. <laughs> hacked and so, slashed away. Yeah. Hacked and slashed, and then pulled our machine guns out of the. You know, our, <laughs> you know it's like Hawkman's Morning Star mace. You know, balls at the end of his hands <laughs> with guns in them. Yeah, because <laughs> overcompensation. Uh, <laughs> maybe Judson Caspian is is overcompensating for some things. I'm just saying. I don't know. I, okay, well, that's and we might get more into this in the next one. But like, how old is he? And for as strong as he is to be able to take Batman down like that, I mean, he's drawn to be pretty big. But yeah, he, he also looks like he might be sixty. Yes, he does. Yeah, he looks he looks pretty old. I mean, he's he's got uh, you know he's got no hair on top. He's got the Picard ring around his head. You know, mm-hmm. um, and actually, it, the subsequent issues, McFarlane draws him to look even older than that, even older than Davis does. Yeah, he does. He does. He makes more wrinkly and everything. Yeah, and his name actually isn't even uttered. His first name in this, I had to go into issue two to get his name, but I wasn't going to keep calling him Rachel's father over and over again. <laughs> so, so Judd Judson Caspian, but. Uh, yeah, I, I have no idea how old he's supposed to be, but yeah, uh, of course we'll get into the we'll get into that backstory next time. So, right, right. Uh, I think here we'll take a break, and we come back, we'll tackle your listener feedback. Dudes, it's totally time to listen to fan holes. What's that, Mikey? Like only the most tubular, righteous, gnarly podcast ever. Um, I don't know, Mikey. I've got some science projects to work on. Yeah, Mikey, and you know, some of the things those fan holes say, you know, really ticks me off. Well, why don't we see what Master Splinter has to say about listening to fan holes? Yeah, sure. Okay, Leo. But what do you think, Master Splinter? Should we listen to Fan Holes, the pop culture podcast made for fans by the fans, or not? I say... Go, Fan Holes! Go, Fan Holes! Go! Ha 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 ha! I made another funny! Ha ha ha! <laughs> Dude! Turtle Power Podcast Hour! A podcast crossover event featuring Fanhole's podcast, Bored with Friends, and Animated Indulgence, coming this September. Nightcast Episode 16, which covered Batman 408 way, way back on September 1st, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Bat at Shapirek, Batman at underscore I underscore Batman underscore I underscore I. Okay. <laughs> Brad Dade, Brilliant Idiot, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Wizard, David Ace Gutierrez, David Bayer Jr., Diablo Frank, Donovan Morgan Grant, Dylan A. Lang, Eric Tramontana, Fanholes Podcast, Hicks at Reading underscore Hicks, H-O-C-O-F, that's the history of comics on film, Jeffrey Dalzell, 
John D. Knoll, Justice's First Dawn, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Michael S. Massey, Mike Gillis, Mike Zumo, Mullet Superman, Nostalgic Fan, Rana at Rana Asylum, World Spine Podcast, Ryan Finelli, Terrence Castingway, Terrence O'Neill, Vertigais, Vinicius Carrero, and Willie Yarbrough. I'm guessing Mullet Superman is not Mike Bailey. Uh, <laughs> long-haired Superman may, might be Mike Bailey. Mullet Superman, no. Uh, over on Facebook, new likes and shares from Aaron Henley, Brad Dade, Brian Cray, Charlie Niemeyer, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics, Daniel Doherty, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, DeBeche, Derek Crabb, Deron Murphy, Gene Hendricks, James Hussey, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Ken Holtzhauser, Kristen Gibson, The Long Box Crusade, Mark Lax, Max Romero, Michael T. Geist, Noah Tarno, Pat Sampson, Patrick Delmore, Pedro Perez, Richard Matsumoto, Rob Kelly, Robert Bell, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, Roger Preeb, The Irredeemable Shag, Siskoid, Steve J. Rogers, Van Z, and Zoom Yukonori. Uh, before we dive into the many, many website comments that we received for last episode, uh, we got a few new emails Brad Dade sent us two emails, the first one specific to Batman 408. Brad writes, Hello, gentlemen. You did a great service to all us longtime Bat fans by allowing yourselves to go through the pain of reviewing 408. <laughs> Your sacrifice. This is going to be a theme that runs through a lot of the comments on this one uh, the pain of going through Batman 408. Your sacrifice will not be forgotten. You did a great job looking at this issue. I just had a few points I wanted to add. Number one, the throwaway line about Ma Gun not going through social services when finding wayward boys for her home. I'm assuming that was to point out how Ma was able to keep her home independent and free from watchful government eyes. In fact, the opposite would happen. The problem is there would still be city, state, and federal guidelines she would be expected to follow. I'm sure social services would at least take a small interest in a stranger scooping children off the street. Yeah. One would hope. Yeah. No, that, yeah, that's a good point. Number two, Ma Gun mentioning how a lot of people in Crime Alley notice Batman visiting on the same night every year. What's the point of mentioning this? It does nothing to help the story along, and it only makes it harder to believe no one in Gotham can figure out who Batman is. Even in a pre-Google age, it wouldn't take a lot of detective work to figure out the significance of that date in Crime Alley. I think every person who wrote in on the comment section mentioned this. Of, yeah. of how saying that like everybody it wouldn't take much to figure out to connect the dots you just cross reference hey did anything significant happen on crime alley on this date in the year in history hmm the death of the waynes what oh their son survived and this is like 20 years later hmm yeah i th- i'm yeah. pretty sure everybody mentioned that well, and Kim Basinger's Vicky Vale, Vicky Vale, figured it out pretty quickly, and in, in, in Bat the '89 Batman pretty much through the same way, you know that. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and three, and the worst miscarriage of justice involving this issue. A few years ago, these issues were reprinted in a trade called Batman Second Chances. I have that trade. Yet to this day, there has never been a trade for Batman Year 3. Sorry, but Year 3 is a personal favorite of mine since it is the first Batman story I ever bought. Well, I mean, if you listen to what we just talked about, Denny O'Neill thinks the comics in Second Chances are Batman Year 3. <laughs> so, what are you complaining about, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> this is Batman Year 3, and then somebody's like, uh, Denny, what about Dick Grayson? Oh, Oh, okay. This other thing's Batman Year 3. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll get to that in two years. 
Yeah. That's our way of introducing the third Robin. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Brad wrote to us again a few days later saying, Congratulations on your recent appearance on FW Presents that featured a great discussion on Batman the Animated Series. Question. Have either of you ever read the Batman Adventures comic that tied into the cartoons? A while back, I went through most of them on Comixology. They were a ton of fun. Most were done in one stories. And on Comixology, all the single issues are always only 99 cents. Don't even have to wait for a sale. Also, the art looks great on a tablet. Cheers, Brad. I, for one, read the original run of the Batman Adventures. I actually won the uh, Mike Pyrebeck art contest in that series one time. Oh, nice. Uh, Unfortunately, the art never made it to me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, and that was when I was at college, and I didn't – I should have kept up on it and, you know, been – you know, found a phone number to call and said, hey, what happened? But it probably got lost in the mail or something. But, uh, but yeah, you can – if you go through, it's like around issue 20, 30-something. I can't remember. But, I yeah. So, but, yeah, I love the <laughs> – I was going to say, can you still track him down? No, no. Damn. Yeah, my power back passed away. <laughs> Not too long after that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so it's um, at the time when, especially the animated Batman Adventures comics started when like Nightfall and everything was really starting to gear up, and it got in its well, it got in its groove by then. And so it was a breath of fresh air to have a normal Batman comic during all that mess. Oh so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I finally started reading them off. A friend of mine, her son is was getting into the age where he was starting reading, and they were doing like a lot of kids' books, but also delving into comics. Uh, I started getting him on his birthday and for Christmas the the trades of the Batman Adventures because mm-hmm. they started publishing them. They've done at least three volumes. I don't know if they've done more since, um, but I got him like two of the Batman Adventures and one of the Superman Adventures trades, and I would read those with him. So I wasn't reading them at the time. I didn't start reading them until recently. But oh, I love them. Yeah, those are great. I want to go back. I kind of dropped off when it switched over to the Adventures of Batman and Robin after a yeah, while. Yeah. Which, you know, that was just when they changed to the Batman and Robin Adventures. Still the same comic, more or less. And I did get some of the uh, the, the the Batman the Lost Years miniseries is, is, is a great transition to explain how things work between the original animated series and the new Batman Adventures. Uh, I highly recommend that one if you can. I think there's a trait. I think there might be a trait of that. Mm. Um, if, if there's not, go find the individual issues uh the only issue you'll probably have a hard time finding is the first appearance of harley quinn and the original <laughs> batman adventures run which i own i will say that i own that and i'm like that's one of the few comics i'm like okay do i sell it now or do i keep it will it i'm not a collector as far as you know i'm not a comic investor but you know when that stumbled into my lap that i own a comic that's selling for like 400 and some dollars i'm like <laughs> do i sell it now or do i keep it in case you know I lose my job and then I have to sell it or something. You know, it's like, mm, is it going to go down in value? Or is it going to maintain? You know, I don't know. But Danny wants to take a semester in France. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I would have no problem doing that because I can read it in the trade paperback or on Comicsology or something. You know, it's but uh, it is kind of nice to have uh, actually have a comic that's worth something. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's so rarely happens. It is, especially modern comics, yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) Hey guys, it's Ryan. Just a quick little update that I wanted to include in this part of the show. After Chris and I recorded this episode, Comixology held a massive sale on all of their DC trades and collections in conjunction with the release of the Justice League movie. 
I ended up buying the digital copies of all of the DC Animated Universe-related collections that they have so far. This includes The Batman Adventures Volumes 1 through 4. This collects the entire 36-issue run of that book, including the annuals and specials. Also, the first volume of The Batman and Robin Adventures, which picks up after Batman Adventures. And I also got the first three volumes of Superman Adventures. It was really exciting to pick these all up at a cheap price. Now, I haven't started my marathon read-through yet, but I've got them loaded on my computer and my different devices so I can enjoy them the first chance I get. You know, because I have so much free time now to read for pleasure. Um, We also got an email from Scott X, who is a friend of the network. He's appeared on shows like Film & Water, Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Uh, Scott shared with us a very revealing interview with Max Allen Collins that was originally published in Amazing Heroes 119 back in the summer of 1987, concurrent with all the, the books that were coming out. Um, ew, this is, ooh, We have a lot to unpack with this interview. Um, we really want to dive into this interview because it's crazy. Uh, Collins' comments from this time on Batman... Yeah, there, there's a lot to say. Um, unfortunately, this is already going to be a really long episode, and I think we might wait. Um, maybe the next episode, which will cover another Batman uh, Collins issue, or Scott, we might wait until we're done with the Max Allen Collins run. But your email is not being ignored. We do definitely want to talk about that interview that you linked to us, because... Oh, man, getting into this guy's headspace when he's talking about comparing his work to others... Boy, if you hated McCollins before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that this was like a, a wide eye opener. Not just an eye opener, but like, you know, like Tex Avery wide eye opener. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wow. So, so, yeah, thanks, Scott. That was yeah. we definitely got to g- get into this. But yeah, yeah, we definitely will. <laughs> but we need we need to have a little bit more time to kind of process and go through it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, with that, we can move on to the comment section from the Fire and Water Network website. That's fireandwaterpodcast.com, in case you didn't know. The first comment came from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. That's a Doom Patrol podcast, in case you didn't know that. Paul said, you got to respect Batman's tireless war on crime. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, I'm not... I'm not responding to that. (laughs) (laughs) Me either. (laughs) Nope, Paul, you don't deserve it. (laughs) Uh, Siskoid from First Strike, the Invasion podcast, FW Team Up, Give Me That Star Trek, Oh Hotmoo or Not, and the Lonely Hearts Romance podcast, all here on the Fire and Water Network, said, I don't know much about these stories except what was described in Who's Who updates. Faye Gunn, Dickens' Fagin, it was such a character. While on the page, I thought that seemed to be an interesting latter-day Batman villain, like the ventriloquist. But you made me see why her cred is so low. <laughs> I, I I think I mentioned this, and I think I responded to Siskoid's comment on the page. For a little while after I was reading this, I, I kind of came up with this idea. I was like, you know what? She could be brought back. There's kind of like the, this cool angle of like really kind of updating her and making her like this hardcore like enforcer and trainer of these young guys in the street. And as I'm describing this to myself, I'm like, I'm describing Granny Goodness. I'm just yeah. <laughs> instead of a fourth world, it's just a, a Granny Goodness. I was like, that's basically the same thing. So I was like, okay, well, I guess any story that you could beef her up for, it would be better to just use that. Well, they kind of did that on Superman the Animated Series in the first Supergirl 
uh, episode, the two-parter, they had Granny Goodness recruiting kids from Earth. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. that might have put that. I, that might have put the idea in my mind. I might have yeah. subconsciously just been thinking of that. Yeah. Yeah, Ed Asner as Faye Gunn. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Uh, uh, Chuck Coletta, who guest appeared on the Film and Water podcast with Rob Kelly talking about Murder on the Orient Express, the original version, mm -hmm. uh, said, I was one of those readers just getting into comics as Jason Todd was going from ginger-haired acrobat slash Dick Grayson clone to the snotty punk we remember today. My main question is, why do readers like Damien, a much more insufferable and callow fellow, when they hated Jason? I always thought a great story would be to reveal that it's been a lie all along and that Damien is, in fact, not Bruce's biological son. Uh, Chuck, I would get behind that 100% because I still hate Damien. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I don't get it. And uh, I think it's a huge compromise to the integrity of the other characters that they would ever accept Damien as Robin. I will, I will give you that he is... Uh, he works in some stories. The Super Sun series with him and, and Jonathan Kent are a lot of fun. I like that series. I've been buying it and reading it. But uh, that's because I like the character Jonathan. I I would just jump for joy if they just said that, no, that's not Bruce's kid. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm right behind you. <laughs> Damien was a character that I thought he suffered in that I personally thought the only person who could write him well was Grant Morrison who created him. Um, I know Pete Tomasi wrote Damien for a long time and I didn't like when Tomasi was writing him. Morrison could write him, but Morrison also, I think created him as a response to the fan hate of Jason. I think mm. he was doubling down on that and showing, no, this is what it would really be like if Bruce Wayne had this snotty sidekick partner that just drove you crazy. So I think he was created to be that type of insufferable and cow and hated character that you would want to see killed off, um, but maybe could be redeemed over time. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he's got a problem. I, when, when Chuck asked why do people you know like Damien, I don't think many fans do. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of the newer fans kind of like him, but I think a lot of older fans just – can't stand him I, that that's my feeling i could be wrong if let us know what you think I'd add to the mix of you know, what do you think of damien in the comments uh, <laughs> of this uh, uh and speaking of which uh what we think of other robins in a lot of ways later chuck came back and asked what we thought of the casting of actor brenton thwaites i guess that's how you pronounce that mm -hmm. as dick grayson in the upcoming titans tv show uh so what do you think of him ryan I've only seen him in that Gods of Egypt movie, um, mm. which was a dumb movie, but I don't think it was as bad as everybody said it was or thought it was. Uh, I, I think it was a horrible bomb because people looked at it and they're like, this looks awful. Um, and it was not good, <laughs> but, but it also – it wasn't like the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, he was fine in that as, as a young type of kid. I, I don't really get an impression of his – talents or personality based on that just because it's it looked like he was probably just him in front of a green screen the entire time and they just added everything in the background so i, I don't think that's a great way to judge anybody's acting talent in terms of like the look sure he could he could probably be fine um i i think it would be great for this titan show which i don't even know if i'm gonna watch it because i've never been a big teen titans fan um i think it would be awesome if he's Dick Grayson for the first, like, five, ten minutes, maybe, like, the first act, and then after commercial, uh, it's Jason Todd for the rest of the show. <laughs> nice. I was like, where's he going with this? Okay. Nice. Nice. 
tied it all back together. Yeah. Um, I don't know this actor at all. Was he, was he in the latest Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah. The four. Yeah. I think the fifth one, the most, I think yeah, the, the most one recent just, one. The one that just came out this summer. I have not seen that. I haven't seen him in anything. Uh, he looks fine. You know, he looks the yeah. part as long as he's, you know, pretty well built and handsome, you know, that, that pretty much describes it. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And, and I know the one guy that they cast as, as beast boy, was the actor that kept trying to petition to be Tim Drake in some kind of Batman project. So he got cast as Asgar Logan. So good for him that he got in, you know, even if he didn't get to play Nightwing or some kind of Robin, he's, he is in the show. So, you know, I'm interested in this, um, especially if it, if it, if it, uh, keys off the original Teen Titans, well, not the original Teen Titans cartoon, that's filmation, but the, the 2000s Teen Titans cartoon, uh, the Glenn Murakami cartoon that, the Teen Titans Go is, of course, based on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't, because a lot of those kids, you know, they grew up like. Well, my son grew up watching that show, and now he's sixteen. So, mm-hmm. you know, so that I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they don't key off some of that for this series. And to me, that would be a good thing, because I thought that was a really. I know a lot of people don't like it because of the anime influences, and they go super deformed and all that stuff. But to me, it's it's a really it's a really good show, and uh, I I really enjoyed it a lot. So. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez from the Ultraverse Podcast Network. Is that still a thing? No, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no that's just me, you know, poking the bear. Okay. Um, David said, since I'm around Chris's age, my experience followed his. My best friend at the time, Edgar, had loaned me his year one issues. And then I saw this. New Adventures, ground floor, gents. I bought it at a comic store, all bagged and boarded, so I had no idea what was in store for me until I read it on the ride home. And man, was I disappointed. My gun. Even at 11, I could see this was a dumb idea. The fact that it's just a few weeks between the dismissal of Dick as Robin and Bruce's eventual decision to train Jason to become the next Robin is pretty stupid. Incidentally, were there then two Robins running around at the DCU at that time? Or did Dick become Nightwing right after Bruce gave him the boot in the post-crisis continuity? Uh, do, we, do we even know? Like the Gosh, well. What? Wait for Batman number 316, or no, I'm sorry, 416. Wait for Batman number 416. Uh, And a lot of this will be addressed. There will be some aspects that are instantly retconned. Thank you, Jim Starlin. Uh, But yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. You know, now in the the pre-crisis continuity, you know, Jason shows up in Robin's costume, in the actual Robin costume, and helps Batman defeat the Joker. And Batman's like, you're not Robin. You can't go around stealing somebody else's identity. Take that costume off. And then he goes back to the proto costume he wore in Detective Comics number 526, which is the costume he should have went with anyway, so he'd have his own identity. The Don Newton one, which is fantastic. Uh, In fact, there was a thing on 13th Dimension about that costume the other day. I was like, oh, what a good somebody else likes that costume. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Dan Greenfield. Uh, But but yeah, so so there was that in the – there was like one issue where there were two Robins running around at least. Like over in New Teen Titans, Dick was Robin, and in Batman, Jason was Robin, but – as far as post crisis, I have no idea, and you know we don't even know what year this is. So I would... <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Marv Wolfman, when he was writing Crisis on Infinite Earths, was like, "This won't screw up my work on New Teen Titans at all." <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, speaking of which, before we move on, I, he he mentioned his his best friend Edgar. Mm-hmm. Have I ever mentioned that one of my best friends growing up was a guy named? Jason Todd. No. <laughs> yes. My, I met him in kindergarten 
and we were friends all through school. So I met him in like 1980. Jason Todd didn't appear till what 1983. So when Jason Todd appeared in the comic books, me and my Jason Todd were already friends. So I got to tell him, "Hey, look, you're in a Batman comic." And then, "Oh, look, now you're Robin." You know, all this stuff. And oh yeah, now you're dead. You know. Uh, and he was the best man at my wedding, of all things. So. Oh, that's so good. I was, I, I was, people, I was waiting for the story to go down a dark, <laughs> dark turn. Like, just like, <laughs> yeah, he was also beaten to death. Oh, no, no. But, yeah, he was yeah. beaten to death with a crowbar, blown up. Uh, some <laughs> version of you know uh, Gerard Christopher punched the wall and he come, <laughs> he come back to life. I don't know. Uh, no, uh, but yeah, no. Seriously, I, I just now realized that that that's. Did I ever mention Jason Todd? That yeah. my friend Jason Todd. So yes, we had many, many adventures together uh you know and getting into trouble and things as kids not as bad as the comic the second jason todd in the comics but you know he's he's a good guy so no no red hood for him (laughs) here's hoping yeah uh david then listed some more dumb ideas from batman 408 and of course these will be recurring themes as we've said no security system for the Batmobile. Sure, it was the 80s, but there were deterrents. Any car with an ejector seat should have some sort of anti-theft device. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if I was a criminal and knew Batman hung out on a certain block on a specific time of year, I'd know to avoid that area and to commit my crime in a different unwatched part of town. Yeah, I thought of that too. Also, Batman just walks around. <laughs> what is this, Earth Haney? Might as well be. Yeah. Uh, Jason gets the drop on Batman. This will be a sticking point with, I think, Ward Hill Terry or somebody else down the line. Yeah. Also, like the Sea Frank. Oh, you, you got a little nickname. Oh, that's cute. Like the Sea Frank, I picked up on the Flash the moment it came out and dropped it around the same time he did. Wally is my comics Flash. And then David says, I hope Chris can wade through the next few episodes. He sounded beaten by the coverage material. <laughs> no, nah, I can I can hack it. I yeah. I can deal with it. I think it's fascinating to, to – to, and I don't want to come at it to pick it apart, but again, again, I really did try to have an open mind about this. I really did. So, I, I, but, it, but it is fascinating to unpack, just like this issue, what was going on in the Batman office. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's so – you know, because now we're, we're past the uneasy of, okay, what is this? Is this a new continuity? What is this? We're into – no, this is the new backstory. Yeah. And, yeah, it's not quite falling in like, like I think they hoped it would. <laughs> Consider this. I think we've got five more Max Allen Collins stories to cover. None of them are as bad as what we've been through. Right. 408 was the bottom. Yes, it was. We are at, we, we've covered the bottom. It gets comparatively better. Okay, Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast, Film and Water, Treasury Cast, Digest Cast, Mountain Comics, Superman Movie Minute, Turn It Off with Tracy, Pod Dylan, and probably soon a MASH podcast, <laughs> said, I listened to this episode while lying on the beach in Ocean City. The beautiful view and ocean air helped me get through reliving this particular issue of Batman. <laughs> I like that. We should maybe that's what we should. There's certain issues we should just go on vacation to have to cover. Them. <laughs> okay, I'm going to Disney World when we get to certain. I should have did that for 408. Uh, but anyway. uh, Chris is right. This issue is a mess, and it's only made worse by coming right after some of the best Batman comics ever done. I see where Ryan is going. This story would be a lot more forgivable if it had been written in 1966, but it wasn't. It makes Batman look like adult. Short changes Dick Grayson and reboots Jason Todd from out of nowhere. Don't even get me started on Faye Gunn. 
But despite the subject matter, a fine episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, thanks, thanks, Rob. And I agree with all points there, yeah. <laughs> and at least I think everybody enjoyed hearing us rip the issue apart or try to defend it or dissect it. They hated right. the story, but they liked our, our discussion of it. So. Right, yes. If, if nothing else, we succeeded there. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan Doherty said, not to bring in my own personal baggage regarding a different character, but this issue smacks of the very thing I've disliked the most about Dan Slott's Amazing Spider-Man run, writing the characters to fit the story instead of writing the story to fit the characters. The biggest problem is, of course, Batman's poorly handled firing of Dick Grayson. It's like the creators were so focused on retelling Jason Todd's origin, they didn't care how they reached their end goal so long as they got there, whether it was a disservice to Dick or not. It's odd because on the surface I prefer Jason being a street kid as opposed to a circus acrobat, just like Dick. It's the execution that's flawed. Yeah, I, I mean, we all agree with that. Like, the, the crime of how... How Dick or how Bruce Wayne fired Dick in the last issue was unforgivable. There's just no way that it makes sense logically, emotionally, narratively. It's just it, you can't justify that. As for Dan's last comment, I agree. Like, I mean, I did like the idea of giving Jason a different type of origin, of not retreading the same circus acrobat thing, of making him more of a street kid, giving him a rougher edge. But again, the the, the execution could have been. Much, much, much better. Yeah. For the, the proper version of this, go watch the new Batman Adventures episode, mm. Sins of the Father. Yep. <laughs> Dick Grayson's already gone as Robin. They He left for his own reasons, and street kid Jason Todd is introduced, and you can actually believe that with a little bit of the hero worship that Tim Drake had for Batman, you can believe that he would accept him as Robin. So there you go. Mm. <laughs> Uh, Derek Crabb from the Fan Holes podcast said, Super Bat Run on Sentence Coming. <laughs> Sorry, let me do that again. Super Bat Run on Sentence Coming. <laughs> when you guys went down the road of discussing that Batman heads to Crime Alley on an annual basis and brought it back to the notion of the non-working five- to six-year timeline, extending it to nine years, I wasn't even going down that particular road, which makes complete sense as a constructive criticism. My head went into thinking, if Batman shows up at Crime Alley on an annual date, couldn't any old Joe cross-reference events on that date and put two and two together? Wouldn't they know Bruce Wayne was Batman? That made me then remember when I watched Batman Returns with my dad when Penguin was making his hit list of the firstborn sons of Gotham. My dad thought he was actually looking to find out who Batman really was. Well, yeah, that's... <laughs> that's and it's kind of surprised that the Penguin didn't because he was... Of the many things that the Penguin, I'm not a crazy about that that version of the Penguin, mm -hmm. but you know he was a crafty guy, you mm -hmm. know. So, <laughs> uh, Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, "I've never read Batman 408, and I haven't been missing out. I like the New Adventures angle, which is why it was a terrible idea to launch that branding with an extended flashback to years old New Teen Titans retroactive continuity." It's also tough to sell new when you're telling the same basic story as was just relayed as a, in a sister title a few weeks prior. It's all pointless and only hurts the book going forward. Just focus on establishing the revised Jason Todd and keep dick out of your mouths. <laughs> nice, classy, Frank. My guess is that Denny O'Neill either inherited or created a cluster f 
because no competent editor would have allowed so many conflicts and had such a high turnaround of talent in such a short span. My suspicion is that after Lenwein left the book, Dick Giordano was supposed to handle the transition, got lost in his greater responsibilities as vice president of the company, not to mention inking Crisis on Infinite Earths, and dropped the hot mess in O'Neill's lap, who may have been editing year one as a separate miniseries for all I know. What do I don't know. What do you think? Is that I don't think that the timeline quite matches up because Dick Giordano stopped inking one. He stopped inking Crisis not too long into the run, and Jerry Ordway came in. And I think that we we're too far. I think at this point, at the beginning of the run, maybe. I mean, maybe there was supposed to be more of a transition period between uh, Lynn Ween and, and Denny O'Neill, and maybe some like Giordano was going to fill in because he Batman was his favorite character, mm-hmm. and he had been the Batman editor uh before I think he was the Batman editor before Len Wein. Mm-hmm. So maybe. But I think that by the time we get here, I think we mentioned it in a maybe the last episode or the one before that, that Denny O'Neill was celebrating his year on the Batman title. <laughs> so at this point I think he should have had his stuff together. I, I, I you know I the early issues, sure, you know, with the the first episodes of this series. But I think by now he should have had a plan in place. I think that that made some cohesive sense, and he thinks he does, obviously, because he's saying, "Oh, we, you you read this, and you've got the cohesive backstory of Batman," and it's like, "Oh, uh, well, oh no, you know, it's you know, it's do we though? Do we, Denny? Yeah, do we? Yeah. Do we really? Yeah." So I, I don't know. He and Frank could be right. I I don't know. It definitely feels, and I remember us talking about this in the beginning of the podcast because right after four hundred, you know, you had the Legends tie-ins. And then you had those two random issues by Collins before year one. And there was a lot of artistic turnover and every issue was by a different writer or different artist and everything. I could definitely see that being a weird transitional time where maybe Denny was coming in really late in the game. And like some of these, I'm sure some of those projects were already in the works when he was taking them over and he put his name on them, but he didn't have much, much to do with it. But, uh, and it it certainly seems like Collins may have been, maybe wasn't supposed to do before year one, but year one got pushed back and there were those issues kind of, so I, I don't know. It certainly seems like the timeline factor that it was a very rocky, very shaky intro to Denny's term. But you're right. By this point, he should have. We should have been on more solid footing, and we're still making a bunch of stupid editorial mix-ups and incontinuities that are are not working. Right. Uh, then, responding to our talk about the Centurions license comic that we uh, <laughs> delved into for some reason, Frank said, I'm going to say it plain, DC obviously was a second choice at best for licensors, and DC would then put too much effort into the worst licenses when they put any effort in at all. I realized Marvel treated their licenses as pre-retirement employment for their aging artists, but it was also a proving ground for interesting new artists and monkey bars for their most irrepressible writers. They only ran Masters of the Universe for three issues under Paul Kupperberg and George Tuska, but Atari Force got Jerry Conway, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name. Gil Kane, Ross Andrew, Eduardo Barreto, and Roy Thomas across a couple dozen issues and mini-comics. When they have a team with potential like Michael Fleischer and Mark Teixeira, they throw them at Power Lords. Hell, some of DC's biggest artists from the 80s were pilfered from Marvel's Micronauts, by then a defunct toy line and afterthought on Marvel's schedule. Color me unsurprised that Bob Rosakis and Don Heck didn't make Centurions happen. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you do, you did get the feeling that there was like no joy behind publishing those some of those comics. Like it was just like, yeah, we got the license. We're gonna. It's it's like you know they were just it was just making money. They got money for the license to, to make the comic, and you know there you go. It's just yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at some of the toy lines and cartoons that were coming out at that time. DC had a bunch of them. It looked like they they went after everything, and they only did four issues, three issues or four issues out of each of these. Meanwhile, Marvel's got 150 issues of G.I. Joe, 80 issues of Transformers. You know, they, I mean, those were going concern, maybe because those toys and those cartoons did better, but it might have helped that the comics were better, so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog and the Legion of Super Bloggers said, I have been waiting for this review. I have never read the issue. I have heard the hate for it, and I have heard the impending hate for it from you guys. And you delivered. <laughs> There's no meat left on the bone for the buzzers to pick at. You guys have flayed, eviscerated, and incinerated this book. Rightfully so. <laughs> but I hope people will remember we don't want to do this. We, I, don't, I don't want to ever come on a podcast and just rip up a book. I, I was invited onto a podcast by a friend of ours to cover a book – I hate the artwork in that book so much that I told him, I said, I just don't think I'm the guy to cover this because mm. I can't have anything positive to say about it yeah. because it's the artwork just makes me want to barf. I just can't, I, I mean, I, I can't, I just can't stand And I hate to be that way. The guy's art style, I just hate it. I just do. And I always have, and I just couldn't bring myself to talk about it because I know I'm not going to be positive about it. Mm-hmm. I can't be. So, so I, I hope people realize we did try to find the good in Batman number 408. <laughs> Chris Warner's art wasn't bad, you know. Yeah, so. It's fine for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, an interesting episode on the start of the Max Allen Collins run. It was interesting to hear Ryan speak of this as a Silver Age story that was in the wrong time. Listening to the plot, I could not help think that with a bit of tweaking, you could have adapted this story into a Batman 66 TV episode. Uh, Jimmy then referenced an interview that Collins did with CBR a couple of years ago. So this is different than the one that we mentioned uh, that Scott X shared with us. In that interview, he talks about the artist Chris Warner departing early. Then Jimmy said, another interesting tidbit that came out of that interview was that Toys R Us was looking for Batman comics to bundle with their projects in 1989. And after looking at the last four years of Batman comics, they overwhelmingly used Collins' run, and he made a lot of money on the back of these reprints. As Collins himself said, critics can dismiss that by saying that my stuff was chosen because it was the most juvenile, that's fine. The money spent well, and I like the idea that younger readers came aboard. <laughs> I remember those. We've yeah. talked about those packs of comics. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, they had the Batman, the the ones where, uh, what was it, Batman 40, was it 402 and 403? That's the, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we had different versions of the, the issues, remember, that had mm-hmm. different ads yep, and things. Yep. Yeah. Because some of those they, were packaged, yeah. Yeah, they made a ton of those things. <laughs> and yeah, for better or worse, probably worse, Collins' stuff has been reprinted. Like we mentioned, there's a whole trade dedicated to some of his stuff now. And as much as we are ripping them apart and we will continue to do so, he he, he has to consider himself one of the more successful writers in terms of you know financially profiting from it. So. Mm-hmm. 
then Jimmy added, forgot to mention that Scott Lobdell brought back Faye Gunn in the first few issues of the Rebirth version of Red Hood and the Outlaws. She had just been released from prison and was trying to start up the same school for criminals, but ran afoul of Black Mask. Uh, assuming from the context that Black Mask may have killed her? Well, nobody remembered it because that was the uh, the run where Starfire was a complete and total slut who was. No, like... this, he says the rebirth version. So I think this is relative. Oh, the I, rebirth version. I think oh, this okay. is just within the last year. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I got you. It's a rebirth version, so it's a version with Bizarro and Artemis in it too. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry about that. So it's not the version where Starfire is a complete and total slut. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that version is the reason why I probably will never read another Scott Lobdell comic, even though I liked his work in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Oh, I just hated this. From the cover to the last page, from the non-bat logo to hammy hag fake gun, this was a stew of stupid. You... <laughs> oh, bless you, Martin. You, yeah. boys did a, you boys did a terrific job of explaining why it was bad, and goodness me, Ryan has gone soft with fatherhood. Yeah, it might have worked as a one-off Silver Age tale, but we're long past such nonsense being acceptable. If DC were going to advertise their books as being not just for kids, then a Batman this emotionally and intellectually dumb just isn't acceptable. Uh, Martin says, I can't recall, given the Did Robin Die Tonight articles, was there a follow-up in which Vicky Vale pointed out that the known Robin never returned? Did everyone assume that, yeah, the older Robin was toast? Or did new Teen Titans fans in the DCU realize Robin had become Nightwing? You know that's a good that's a good question because I've always wondered you know how did I mean Nightwing was Robin was the leader of the Teen Titans and then instantly Nightwing was the leader of the Teen Titans they're both dark haired guys wearing domino masks okay the Nightwing mask has the wings on it but you know wouldn't most people assume that it's the same guy just in a different costume you know I mean but this is the same universe where and I and I I do believe the Clark Kent disguise can work per Christopher Reeve but. Now, if he was a news anchor man, I don't think that would work. I'm just saying. Uh, but, but uh, I, you know, so maybe they wouldn't recognize it. It's a suspension of disbelief thing. But, yeah, I've always wondered, you know, and did, did was Gordon – did Gordon realize that, that Nightwing, when he ran into Nightwing, was he, you know, Robin? Because there's stories where Gordon and Nightwing interact. There's that Teen Titan spotlight where they interact. And so did he realize that he was Robin? I haven't read it in a long time, so I don't remember. But they never seem to have a hard, fast rule if people – uh, you know, um, pre-crisis, a lot of people thought that Jason was Dick, you know, it, it, so, you know, it, he's like, you know, four inches shorter you know, and smaller. I mean, how can you, you know, but OK, whatever. <laughs> I will say that you did you did you had to go good cop a little bit on that issue because I was definitely bad cop. I was you were Gordon and I was Batman in the <laughs> interrogation scene in the Dark Knight. You know, where's your detonator? Where is it, you know? <laughs> That's <just> basically. <laughs> nice comparison. I'll take that. Okay. Noah Tarno said, Another fine episode, although I was having horrible flashbacks to when this story came out. I didn't read it. I was in one of my lack of bat interest periods. But Who's Who Update 87 filled me in on Jason Todd's retconned origin. And while it always bothered me how Jason was introduced as a near clone of Dick down to his family being the Flying Todds, Something about Batman catching him stealing the tires seemed flat and boring to me, as if Denny O'Neill, etc., were all under time pressure to come up with a new origin, any new origin for Jason. This half-assed seeming approach to redo origins applies to a lot of post-crisis retconning, come to think of it. 
There's a reason why Power Girl being from Atlantis and Black Canary being an original Justice Leaguer didn't stand the test of time. Also, part of my dislike was how it seemed to erase Killer Croc from continuity, and for some reason I loved that dude back then. He was pretty damn creepy in those original Conway Newton stories and hadn't been brought back nearly enough. Anyway, keep the nostalgia coming. Yeah, I agree. Killer Croc was a great villain as originally written. I mean, he was a he was basically like a creepy gang. He was a gang lord that was in the shadows. You didn't know what was going on with him. Then you saw that he had this reptilian face. And I always remember that bit where Batman like tracks him down. He's in his home and Croc just flips out. It's like because his his secrecy was so important to him. And he just like loses his mind and tries to kill Batman. And he was I like the original Killer Croc better than like any version that's come since. Even the fun animated series version, you know, hit him with a rock. You know, that's he's funny as a dumb brute. But he's interesting as the way Conway originally conceived him. He's a character mm-hmm. that you want to follow. He could make a top five Batman's villain, Batman villains list. Like no problem on that. Like with the way because you're right. He was scary. He was menacing. He was threatening both physically, and I mean maybe he wasn't like the brightest bulb, but he wasn't an idiot. Um, in the way he is now, it's like he's just he's always just like hired muscle for somebody. Right. And I got the impression the way they originally portrayed him, and I don't really know if that's true, but I got the impression that he was supposed to be an African-American character. So that would have gave, you know, Batman some diversity in his Mm -hmm. villains, too. I mean, he had the Black Spider, Mm -hmm. but, I mean, he was kind of, eh, you know. But, I mean, Killer Croc could have been, like, a major, you know, I mean, and he had that connection to Jason. If They they never really brought him back to, to be a menace until issue number 400 that we covered, and then, mm-hmm. he, then it was retconned away, so, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne from the Punch Like a Girl podcast, which is now here on the Fire and Water Network, as well as other shows that we don't care about on the Council of Geeks feed. <laughs> Nathaniel said, it's the one we've all been waiting for, and man, I have to say, it really sounds like this story deserves all the crap it gets. It really is a shame that they appeared to kneecap Jason right out of the gate by having his origin tied up to this abysmal story. Of course, if he'd been written well right after that, he might have just recovered enough not to be voted to death by Rob Kelly. I haven't read this myself, but I remember thinking during the synopsis, wow, Batman is bad at everything in this issue. He's bad at crime fighting, he's bad at vetting an off-the-grid school for wayward boys, and in his handling of Dick, he's bad at basic logic. Just wow. Did he get a concussion between issues that we don't know about? All that being said, one thing I need to point out here for my own sanity, you guys can have all the divergences on Centurions you want. So I guess we shouldn't talk about those comics anymore. But how long do you need to go on about how the timeline doesn't work? Okay, admittedly, this is partly my own issue because it's the kind of geeky nitpick that drives me nuts because, by and large, I don't care. If a timeline makes no sense within the confines of the immediate story being told, that's one thing, but I honestly do not now and never have cared about consistent timelines of comic book characters. Maybe this is a side effect of me rarely keeping up with a comic on an issue-by-issue basis over the long haul, so I had to adopt a loose, I'll-just-take-the-writer's-word-for-it attitude by default. Now, I'll grant it's worth touching on briefly since Denny Denny O'Neill had made it a stated goal, but it kind of dragged things down for me. Well, you're not going to like this episode. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) 
Yeah, and uh, like again, like I, it occurred. The reason, because normally I would be kind of the same way. I'd be, it's, you know, it's comics. Like the when people used to nitpick, it's like how can Wolverine be on you know five different teams in the late '90s, early 2000s? Like how does that make sense? It's a he's a comic book character. Who cares? It's just except that they're not happening at the same time. But again, coming in this era, you know, DC was saying this stuff matters. This is the definitive timeline. We've scrapped away all those alternate dimensions and alternate Earths because they were confusing. Now we're putting this on like a straight and narrow track. Well, if you're doing that, try a little bit harder to adhere to that. And that, so that was why I brought up. And yeah, this is that's going to be a recurring thing in this one with the year two because. It doesn't feel like this is a continuation of year one, but that's what they're telling us it is. So, I'm, yeah, I'm going to point it out. So. Yeah, I think I think we kind of have to. I mean, because it, we've got to address the lack of it, you know, internal logic here. Mm-hmm. That because they are stating this is our goal, right. and they're failing. I mean, I mean, I'm not, I mean, not to you know, like the Red Skull said in in Captain America's, you know, uh, you are failing. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it, it, they are. I mean. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, unfortunately, and, and it, I think because we have taken this, we, we are doing the post-crisis adventures of Batman. We, by definition, kind of have to point this stuff out. I mean, it's just uh, to me, it's it's a it's a part of the show that that we have to address. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. just, that's just my take on it. Uh, Brian Linton said, I don't have much to add to what's already been said, but I will say that my brothers and I enjoyed the old Centurion's <laughs> animated series, and between us had the action figures for the three heroes. I never knew they had a comic book. Too bad it doesn't sound like it was particularly good. Darn. <laughs> Coming soon to Centurion's podcast. Right, all right, thank you. I was just like, oh man, Frank, Nathaniel are complaining about my divergence into, into Centurion's talk. Well, thank you, Brian. You you made it all worth it. Now I definitely want to do <laughs> We're going to have to cover Centurions on Wonderful Toys. There you go. I, I don't know if I still have my, my Ace McCloud or whatever his name was around here somewhere, but I probably do. Yeah. Ted Kilvington said, One way to redeem the story is to say it was a drunken retelling of the actual events by a Red Hood era Jason Todd. <laughs> I like I that. Like it. Uh, yeah. yeah, good. Bizarro's like, tell me story about how you become Robin. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Vera Wild said, okay, I know it was tossed offline, but Ryan, don't even dream of absolving the all-star Batman and Robin, the boy wonders depiction of Vicky Bell because of a 30-year-old panel. No amount of precedent can excuse what Miller did. And yes, I do blame Miller almost entirely, even though Lee drew it. Why? Because I've read the issue number one script to that monstrosity. I'm not sure exactly how it was made public, and so far as I know, it's the only issue whose script got out. But allow me to share a few choice excerpts using Miller's exact words when it came to his notes on how Lee should draw Vicky Vale. And please note that all capitalization is as it appears in the script. Detail her bra. It'll drive them crazy, Jim. Keep our eyes on how good she looks. Something tells me you can pull that off, Jim. Body shot thigh up. Give us an even better angle on the babe. She knows what she's got. Make them drool. Okay, Jim, I'm shameless. Let's go with an ass shot. Panties detailed. We can't take our eyes off her, especially since she's got one fine ass. Ladies, gentlemen, and any variants thereof, Mr. Frank Miller, the poster child for... No, really, I swear, he used to be good. 
<laughs> Ryan should probably be grateful. Other issue scripts haven't emerged because I can only imagine how pervy the man's intru- instructions on drawing Black Canary were. Oh. Oh. Sorry to go off on a tangent about something that was at best 30 seconds of the episode, but this could be my only chance to slag off this title in a comment on this particular podcast, and I had to jump at it. Oh, my God. That's just... <laughs> Yeah, all of, all of this, for those of you who are confused, all of this is because I mentioned that um, in 408, we see Vicki Vale calling Bruce Wayne. She's just sitting at home on her bed, luxuriating, like, but she's like in this like nice detail, like ornate bra and panties outfit or whatever. It's like, what is she dressed like that for? And then I was like, well, that's the way Jim Lee drew her in All-Star Batman and Robin, which looked shameless. I was like, okay, I guess maybe that's the way Vicky rolls. But, oh, God, yeah, that those script details, I, I mean... That doesn't really surprise me, but it still hurts to see it. Yeah. Um, and and God, yes, the, the the way Miller would have been describing Black Canary in her intro, and then the sex scene that she has with Batman, like on the docks. Yeah, I, I don't ever want to think about that. So I, I still say, and you and people can tell me I'm wrong. I think Frank Miller laughs to the bank every time he does a project for DC Comics. I think I think he loathes these characters now. Mm. I think he he sneers and laughs at them and. Uh, you know, I think he just takes their money and writes whatever the hell he wants, and they take it because he's Frank Miller. That's my opinion. I could be completely wrong. It's good but to the, have contempt for your audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I swear, I think that's. I mean, I, I again, I could be completely wrong, but I, I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Jason Pope said, "You are so right. This Jason Todd Robbins background being a street kid." is more interesting and more appealing than doing the Circus Kid Robin story again. I, too, prefer this direction. It's too bad the execution and portrayal are all wrong. It could have really worked out, but this just does not. Yep. Yep, I agree completely. And we will give the final word to Ward Hill Terry, whose contempt for this story (laughs) just drips off the webpage. (laughs) It was just over a year ago that I started hearing the promos for this podcast as I binge-listened to Ryan's Secret Origin show. I was a... Yay, Secret Origin. I wasn't particularly interested as this was not the Batman era I was fond of, but one thing stuck with me from those promos. Where Batman fires Dick Grayson. You want to get another partner? (laughs) I was thinking, I wonder when that happened. I'm sure glad I stopped reading that stuff. And then as this episode approached, having by now succumbed to Ryan and Chris's talents, I realized it was this issue, which I've read, which I still own, which I had almost entirely forgotten, save for one page, which made me stop buying Batman. A kid can take the tires off the Batmobile. A kid can take the tires off the Batmobile. <laughs> it is stupid enough to write that Batman drives to Crime Alley. It is stupid enough to write that he parks in Crime Alley. It is stupid enough to imply that there is no anti-theft, alarm system, or custom-made unremovable hubcaps on Batman's personal vehicle. But a kid... Jacking up, unscrewing the lugs, setting down the car, and doing the same on the other side, alone, bite me. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's Ward, by the way. Yeah, of course. Now, let's fix in everything else, you and these wonderful commenters, especially David, the Bat Hound Gutierrez, <laughs> the Bat Hound, I love it, have said, add in the atrocious inks of Mike DiCarlo, or of Mr. DiCarlo, and I nominate this issue, the single worst Batman story, 1939 to 1989 division. <laughs> I'm surprised by Ryan's non-vitriol. Imagine if Roy Thomas had written this. But see, they're cool now. They walk together here. Uh, We're best buds. Best buds. They're homies. 
I really had forgotten most of this issue. That intro of New Jason was so off-putting, it wiped the remainder of this putrescence, I have a hard time with that word, from my mind. I just took a look at the sample pages you provided, and it was even worse than I thought. Now, mind you, I'm still coming down from the Kirby Centennial, and anything less than Kirby is going to be judged harshly. However, that page with the Joker shooting Robin is like anti-Kirby. The panels don't flow. The POV swings wildly each panel. There is little sense of movement from panel to panel, and the other pages are no better. That was a momentous month of comics for me. Not only did I quit buying Batman, this month also marked the last month that I purchased all three Superman titles. And Flash and Young All-Stars were one and done for me that month, too. I really have restrained myself with this comment. Wow. <laughs> I don't want to get all Diablo Frank on this issue. I was thinking about what Ryan said. How it was sort of an out-of-time Silver Age story, and also thinking about Batman stories by David B. Reed, and I think a key difference is this. Those stories were inconsequential. Quick, name a supporting character introduced by David B. Reed. Time's up. They weren't meant to be anything more than a good read. The New Adventures of Batman number 408 was published in the age of, quote-unquote, significance. Stories published then, especially at DC in the immediate post-crisis times, were supposed to be the quote-unquote, true version, the only version, significant, and Rao help us, collectible. That was the real story, and it's a lousy story, but a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think you pretty much summed it up there, Warren. <laughs> we should have just had him write that thing first, and we could have, like, you know, saved ourselves, like, two hours of discussion in the last episode. <laughs> Warren speaks for pretty much everyone. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this the, we we probably have reached the the bottom of the barrel for our podcast. Honestly, with that issue, we probably have. I, I imagine. I, yeah, I can't think of an issue of Batman or Detective that's that's more reviled than than that particular issue. <laughs> I hope not, because the next issue we're going to cover on the show is the follow up to that. Next, next issue, we're back to Batman 409 with the next Colin story that continues off where the last one, and we get to see Jason actually become the new Robin. It's the fulfillment of that story. Um, yeah, these, oof, the quality, the quality isn't isn't always there, folks. Um, but there's a lot to talk about, and at least we hope that you're having fun listening to us uh, take the bullet and talk about them. Um, and and I do firmly believe that, and, and Chris, you, you just said the same thing. I I do believe that we have we covered the bottom. That last issue, four hundred eight, was the worst that it gets, and, and particularly for Collins Run, which has many flaws and many noteworthy. I think the next couple of stories that we covered by him, they have some of the same problems, but they're not as bad. They're not as pronounced. They're certainly not as offensive because we just were done with the the whole dick thing like that, that the firing of him it's away with so now we just have Batman training a young Robin as if these are stories from the fifties or sixties when they're supposed to be in the eighty late eighties so that'll be the biggest hang up that we have to get through so I wonder if we had you know stayed on our normal schedule done Batman four o eight and then then detect this issue detective shortly thereafter would we have been less critical of this issue? Because we had that gap in between. We'd be sure. like, oh, thank God, Barr and Davis. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's that. Wow, I wonder. Yeah. 
And, you know, going forward, it might be like, oh, man, Todd McFarlane, this is so much better than what we're reading in Batman, which which probably would never be uh, something that we would think about in in other contexts. But that's, yeah, that's a good point. So um, as as for the release schedule, people, we're, we're going to try and, and get these out. It's going to be. It's going to be a little bit different. First of all, Chris has his regular schedule with Superman Movie Minute, and that's a great podcast, so I don't want to interrupt that. I I do kind of want to get back to getting these out a little bit more regularly, but it might be more like once a month, uh, at least for a little while. And at some point, and I think once we get past year two, I, and this has been a goal from the beginning of this show, I want to get a point to where we can cover more than one issue per episode. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, and that was, you know, as much as this show owes its its inspiration to From Crisis to Crisis, uh, the Superman podcast by uh, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, you know, they would cover an entire month's worth of comics in one episode. That's what I wanted this to be doing. So hopefully we'll get to a point with, you know, one issue of Batman and one issue of Detective per episode. But for the time being, we still have so much to say on every issue. Maybe once we get to the Alan Grant and Bray Fogle detective issues and the Jim Starlin Batman issues, we might hit that point where we can kind of cruise through some because there's less to nitpick and more to just kind of enjoy and bask in. That is the stated goal. Whether we accomplish that, we'll see. We'll see. We'll probably have to quit talking about Centurion so much, though. (laughs) (laughs) No, damn it. I I won't compromise on that. Batman Nightcast featuring Centurions. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.